And gentlemen of the jury, the prosecution is not going to get that man today. No, because I'm going to get him. Welcome, folks. Broadcasting from our radio and television studios here in beautiful Northwest Pennsylvania, where we broadcast each and every weeknight, seven to ten p.m. Eastern time, right here on the Global Star Radio Network. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for your belief and your trust in us as we walk through this minefield of current events together, uh, folks. Don't forget, we have two websites: um, Hagman and Hagman dot com. That's for the show. HagmanReport.com. dot com. That's for news, information, and analysis. And that's um, we, we've got we've got kind of a logjam in terms of um, getting some information out. We're attempting to verify some information and put it put out some analysis analyses plural um, on HagmanReport.com. So just keep watching that. Expect to have some stuff have a breakthrough of that logjam tonight, uh, early tomorrow. And again, you know we we don't. Here, here's the thing. You are inundated 24-7 with news headlines. The, the, it's just incredible. We live in an incredible news cycle. So it's, uh, it's ever-changing, and it's very easy to miss things that are very important. Um, a couple of things. Uh, we were in Dallas uh, at the beginning of the year, and I, I don't have any pictures here of, uh, in fact, you'll have to forgive me, it was, they're on my computer, but I, I didn't put any. I didn't put any up for the show tonight. Went to Dealey Plaza and uh, had done a lot of uh, actually done a lot of interviews. The reason I bring this up is fifty-three years ago. It seems wow that makes me old then too. Fifty-three years ago, go today. JFK was assassinated. Now I was a young man, obviously very young man, but if I can remember it. You have to cut me in half and count the rings to see how old I am or carbon date me. I'm not sure. Um, but, but yeah, 53 years ago today, Kennedy was assassinated in Dealey Plaza. Now, the reason I bring this up is because, well, two reasons. Um, number one, it has relevance to today. And number two, you always have to kind of watch what the government puts out quietly. In a second here, I'm going to get into that. Tonight, we've got a great show lined up for you. Joel Richardson, <clears throat> excuse me, Joel. Yeah, if I can, uh, if I can swallow at the same time. Joel Richardson, joelstrumpet.com. He's been on with, with, uh, he's been on Fox News. He's been on all of the major media channels. He's a New York Times bestseller, bestselling author. I'm going to be talking about the geopolitics. Of the Middle East, particular Turkey, watch Turkey, and he's written about the uh, Islamic Antichrist. Now, I've got some questions for him on that, and then after that, of course, we're going to have Stan Dale from StanDale.com. So we got a great show lined up for you. But with respect to Kennedy, and uh, I just want to touch on this briefly. Fifty-three years ago today, assassinated, and you know that was a coup in America. Some say America, America lost her innocence on that day, and I, and I, and I suppose that's true. 
that started the string of assassinations in the 60s, of course. And as we, as we looked at it, uh, I, I just, there's just, there's just no way Oswald was the assassin or acted alone, in my view. The reason I bring this up now again, there's, uh, because we are entering Dealey Plaza as a country. I truly believe that. There's a coup underway in, in America. Whether it's, you're talking about the covert power grab. It, it, you know, it, it almost depends on what, pers- what, you, what your perspective is. If you are a pro-Hillary, which is doubtful you'd be listening to this program anyway, but if you're pro-Hillary, you'd say, well, there's a coup. A coup happened. If you're pro-Trump, I, I, you could say definitely a, a coup that took place. But different perspectives on that. But um, released in the CIA publication on September 29th of 2014, now that's two years ago, over two years ago, was this document. I don't, and I don't expect you to see it. Uh, it's fine. The document is really, it's, uh, it's a CIA publication. Death of a President, DCI John McCone and the assassination of John, John F. Kennedy. Now, I don't know how many people have ever heard the name John McCone. Not a household name, however, or today anyway. Politico back last year did a story on this report. And Philip Sheenan, wrote an article for Politico. Yes, and here's the title of the article. Yes, the CIA director was part of the JFK assassination cover-up. Let me say that again. Yes, the CIA director was part of the JFK assassination cover-up. And when I read the headline, again, this is from last year, doing research for the JFK assassination, just doing research for it. Seeing the release, release of this document, looking at this article, John McCone, came to the CIA. He was an outsider in the CIA, just briefly about him. He, he, uh, by, by profession, he was an industrialist and an engineer, I guess. He replaced Ellen Dulles at the time as director of the CIA in November 1961 after JFK had forced out Dulles following the, uh, Fidel Castro invading Cuba's Bay of Pigs fiasco. You know all about that, of course. Well, after Kennedy's assassination in Dallas back in November 63, uh, Johnson kept McCone on in the CIA. And what had happened was the CIA had information, at the very, very least, as this document released by the CIA, although even still somewhat redacted. The CIA admits that they threw a monkey wrench into the Warren Commission, into their uh, into their investigation. And McCone was the front man to do it. The director of the CIA at the time actually withheld information from the Warren Commission. Not that that would have made a difference, but, you know, when people say, well, oh, you, it couldn't have been a conspiracy. You'd have to have too many people and just too many people involved in this conspiracy. Well, wait a second. Not really. When you've got the director of the CIA calling the shots... You think of it this way. You know, think of your local police department. And if you have the head of the police department directing the detectives in certain areas, 
it's easy to control the investigation when you control the choke points. And this is exactly what happened back in 1963. So I just want to, uh, I'm going to be putting this up on HagmanReport.com after this show. But I do want to, again, John McCone, director of the CIA, it was admitted, and you can find this at Politico uh, from last year, but I, I've got some additional information, some updated stuff uh, as well from my own research. But it's interesting how this report, the DCI John McCone and the assassination, assassination of President Kennedy, how this report identifies, identifies uh, information that was not revealed to the commission, including evidence that the CIA might somehow have been in communication with Oswald in, when he was in Mexico City and uh, before 1963 and in 1963, and that uh, the CIA had covertly, secretly monitored Oswald's mail. And a lot of people don't remember or don't, don't know this. H.T. Lingwell, H.T. Lingwell was the code name. The CIA actually opened mail back in the day. Now they just scan it, they read it. I mean, it, it's the same. Nothing has changed, I guess. You don't think your mail's being read? It is. H.T. Lingwell was the operation back then, as named by Politico. But there's some very interesting stuff here about the assassination of Kennedy. Um, and it's very relevant to today. If you can, uh, Eric, if you can toss up, one thing I want to bring to everyone's attention as well is, uh, let me go to, let's go to the Trump card. Or the, uh, yeah, the Trump card. Alright, we're going to put up, uh, an image. I don't know how many people have, hey, folks, you've heard of the Illuminati card game. I'm sure if you listen to this program at any, for any length of time, you, you know about the Illuminati card game. If you haven't, of course, well, now you just have heard about it. There is a card. Now, allegedly, ostensibly, this card game was, these cards were published back in 1995. There have been revisions. There have been different. It's it's crazy weird how this goes. Um, is that on screen? Okay. Take a look at this. Take a look at this card. If this was indeed released in 1995 or at any time, I'll say before 2001, which I, based on my investigation, and, and how do you authenticate a release date with precision, given the oddities of the Internet? It's difficult to do that. But take a look at this card. It's on your screen. What do you think about that? Is that Trump? It, it certainly looks that way to me. Is uh Okay, so if that is Trump... What's the message here? What's the message that, that is being um, sent? I want everyone to take a look at that because it, it's, it, folks, if you're listening to this, just via Global Store or BTR, there is a, uh, there's a, there's a card in the Illuminati card deck with a man that looks an awful lot or an image on, on that looks an awful lot like Donald Trump and on the, on the right, there's a comparison, or, or on the left side of the the image that we have up, there's there's a comparison. The card is on the left, far left, and again on the far right. And the um, the text really 
at the bottom of the image, which looks an awful lot like it could be Donald Trump. And at the bottom of the image, which is visible on the right-hand side, it states that any time, at any place, our snipers can drop you. Have a nice day. What do you make of that? And if that is the case, put that in context of what's taking place today with the riots. No, I'm sorry. Well, yeah, riots. And think about this in the context of the inauguration. And one thing about the inauguration I want want to mention, or one thing about the election uh, I want to mention, I did did a couple of, well, when when I was on with Dave Hodges last Sunday, and uh, I did, I think, a video about this as well, talking about the Electoral College. Folks, look, I've been getting emails about this. I know the Electoral College, it, it would be absolutely impossible Okay, to nearly impossible to throw the election to Clinton. I understand that. That's not. That's that was never the point. The point is this: there are five hundred and thirty-eight electors, and there's three hundred and six for Trump, two ninety-four Clinton. Obviously, Trump has has won handily, or I'm sorry, uh, three hundred six for uh, for. Trump. But aside from that, the the story is not whether or not, for example, the um, the Electoral College could be, you know, you could have faithless voters and then have a situation where they would vote for Clinton or throw their vote away, and and then that would result in a Clinton coup of sorts. That's not the issue. The issue is the globalist harassment. Maybe I wasn't clear on that. Maybe I didn't articulate myself well enough on that. It's the globalist the harassment from a global level. That's the issue. It's what what is taking place behind the scenes. And also, have you noticed in the media and have you noticed in general conversation that there is a lack of language precision with our language we don't live in a democracy we live in a representative republic the the electoral college is that is well obviously because we live in a representative republic we have an electoral college keep that in mind because what the what these what these individuals what these what these coup, the masters of of the the coup out there they're trying to overthrow our government, infiltrate and overthrow and divide and conquer. What they're trying to do is is to capitalize on the ignorance, on the on the historical ignorance of Americans. Number one and number two, they're changing our language to reflect something we are not. But more importantly, in my view, anyway, is that they will cast doubt on the legitimacy, as I've said all along, on the Trump presidency with the American people because in that fashion folks then then you can actually be more effective in your rioting so I want to I want to make sure you have that all right one last thing before we bring our guest Joel Richardson on uh, Eric if you can you put up the 2017 cover of the economist just very quickly all right folks take a take a look at this 
this is uh we follow the economist because we know uh it, it's a it's a it's a globalist publication and then the cover as you see right here you see it's uh the world in 2017 i, I just find a couple of very interesting things look at the shape of the the images on the front it's all about trump planet trump it goes from uh, left to right at the tower, judgment, the world, the hermit, and so on. Uh, death, the magician, wheel of fortune, and the star. You take a look at this, and it, what message is this sending? The the cover of the Economist sending, especially relative and in the context of what I showed you earlier. That being that uh, supposed Illuminati card. Okay, that if that was published in '95, if it was. Um, then you know what 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 message is that sending as well as the cover of the economist all right we have our guest ready and waiting and i want to thank him so much folks uh if you have not heard of this man and i cannot believe for a moment you haven't his name is joel richardson mr richardson is a new york times best selling author uh his website is joel joelstrumpet.com that's joelstrumpet.com and we have on the program description or within the program description we have links to his website you can go to Amazon visit his Amazon page as well for his books he is the author of The Islamic Antichrist I had a hard time uh, not understanding but I I had a hard time uh, with this because I've always believed I've always believed that the Antichrist would arise from a European power as opposed to the Muslim world. Folks, when you go to joelstrumpet.com, take a look at the media. Take a look at his his presentations, whether it be on, on Fox News or uh, Sid Roth or wherever it might be, and and watch and, and listen to what he's got to say. And even more importantly, if you want to pursue this avenue of, if this avenue of interest, uh, maybe this interests you, his book, The Islamic Antichrist, is exceptional. I mean, exceptional. It's compelling. And and I, I have to take another look at this. I mean, I had to take another look at this based on his information. And, you know, the, the Bible predicts in the last days a very charismatic leader will establish a global following in the name of peace. We know that. Islamic prophecy predicts the same. You've got two signs. You've got the, the Christian worldview and the Islamic worldview. Um, Islamic prophecy predicts that a man will rise up to lead the nations, pledging to usher in an era of peace. Now, Islam's savior is called the Mahdi. However, and he pronounces it much classier than I do. Okay. Uh, and of course, in the Bible, it's the Antichrist. Well, Joel Richardson has done some absolutely incredibly stunning research. This book's been out for a while, The Islamic Antichrist. But I found all of his books exceptionally informative we are lucky to have him on Joel Richardson from joelstrumpet.com Mr. Richardson thank you so much for joining us well thank you so much for the uh, glowing introduction it's a blessing to be with you uh, I, sir, I'll say this we are blessed to have you um, there's so much to talk about I mean from the Islamic Antichrist to what is taking place geopolitically with respect to Israel you know the the rumors about Israel Obama maybe dividing Israel and then you've got the speculation of of well all things related to Israel and then you've got Turkey which I know you've had your sights on for some time and then you've got well everything else where do you want to start tonight 
Well, let's start with let's start with what's been taking place in Turkey. Let's just begin from a purely geopolitical perspective uh, and discuss some of what's been unfolding over just the past few years with the AKP party, the Islamist uh, party that's ruling in Turkey, and some of the fairly dramatic things that have uh, have been unfolding. Because this, in my opinion, this is something that if you're a student of biblical prophecy, this is profound. If you're not a student of biblical prophecy, this is profound. You know, regardless of where you're coming from, what is unfolding in Turkey right now is something that everyone needs to, you know, wake up, pay attention to, and, um, you know, as I said, whether you believe this is the fulfillment of biblical prophecy or not is is really not uh, entirely relevant because the the world is going to have to deal with Turkey in the years ahead, and if we don't understand uh, who Turkey is today, we're not going to be prepared for who Turkey is in just a few years. Hmm. Okay. And, and you make yeah again you make a very compelling argument about the role of Turkey, the role of I mean all, all the ge- geopolitics of the of the uh, of that area. And it's interesting that you had the foresight through your research to to really kind of lead with this, so to speak. So, um, where are we at here with Turkey as it relates to, oh, I don't know, the, I don't want to get too far ahead of myself here, if we, or ahead of you, or basically ahead of myself, but if we're, if we're looking at the geopolitical uh, importance of Turkey and America's relationship with Turkey, and the West, their relationship with Turkey, what, what what is taking place, or what has taken place over the last eight years under the Obama leadership here in America with respect to Turkey and um, Israel and such. What's what's the backstory here? Sure. Well, first of all, you know, we need to just begin by acknowledging the absolute historical relevance of, of Turkey. Of course, the Turks, you know, before there was a Republic of Turkey, the Turks ruled the Middle East for over 500 years, over 600 years, uh, through the, the Ottoman Empire, the Ottoman Caliphate. But, uh, you know, of course, as we were coming into the, uh, the early part of the 20th century, uh, with the Industrial Revolution and the rise of the West and Europe, and the United States was prospering, uh, Turkey became known as the sick man of Europe. They were really beginning to flounder. And uh, along rose a leader named uh, Mustafa Kemal, and they call him Ataturk, which is an honorific title. It means the father of the Turks. And really, he was a genius. He looked at uh, the West, he looked at Turkey, and he decided the reason that Turkey was floundering was specifically because of Islam. And so he instituted this incredibly ingenious system of checks and balances, this political system that would essentially guarantee that Islam would not rule Turkey. And he believed that if Turkey was able to sort of throw off an Islamist government, that they could then compete with the West. Well, okay, so you had 80-plus years of the Republic of Turkey. He established the Republic of Turkey. The Ottoman Empire was broken up, of course, with the help of the Western colonizing powers, and thus you had, you know, these various nation-states that were rather arbitrarily created, Syria, Iraq, Lebanon, Jordan, etc., and um, and then, of course, Turkey. Well, all, you know, for the past 80-plus years, you had this very moderate uh, Islamic nation, and so coming into, let's say, you know, just uh, the turn of the 21st century here, uh 
from the perspective of the West, we were looking to Turkey as the model. We said this is a perfect example of an Islamic country that's very moderate, that's very secular, and we wanted to replicate that model throughout the Middle East. So whether we're dealing with, you know, sort of the uh, the Bush doctrine, which was, you know, to a degree following after the the, the Reagan sort of model, uh, we wanted to try to use Turkey as, a, again, a shining model. Well, in 2002, you had the rise of the AKP party, the Justice and Development Party, and they're Islamists, but we viewed them as fairly moderate, and so you had uh, this fellow who rose to power, a former mayor of Istanbul, Recep Tayyip Erdogan. Well, of course, you know, since 2002, now here we are 14 years into the rise of his, uh, his power, little by little, step by step, Erdogan has taken over uh, piece by piece every, every portion of the uh, Turkish government. So, of course, you know, from the prime minister, the seat of the prime minister, to the presidency, to the parliament, to the judiciary, et cetera, et cetera, all the way down to the local police. Step by step, he has sort of, you know, worked his way into power, even to the point where a few years ago, and this was really the final, uh, sort of final wall in terms of, uh, you know, in his way of, of potential complete control of the country, was the military. Well, you have this this episode referred to as Irgenikon uh, in Turkish, and it was essentially a claim uh, where Erdogan claimed that roughly 300-plus of the top military brass, top military leaders, were engaging in a secret coup where they were going to blow up various uh, you know, landmarks across the country and fake a terrorist attack and blame it on the AKP party. So what he did is he preemptively... Uh, you know, overnight arrested roughly 300 plus of the top military leaders and essentially he beheaded the military. He took all of his, you know, secular opponents out of the military and began placing, replacing them with many of his own supporters. So really what we've seen is all in the name of democracy. Yeah, this is the way that he's framed it, is democracy and for the good of the country, et cetera, et cetera. We've seen a very slow, gradual dismantling of Kemalism dismantling of the system of government that was put in place by Ataturk. And the final the final straw, you know, just happened a few months ago with the failed Turkish coup. And this is where yeah, we're we find be, ourselves Joel, today. We're going we're to pick up right where we left off, right on the other side, because you wrote about this, uh, the Turkish coup. You wrote about this WorldNet Daily on September 17th, 2016. Check it out, folks. Joel Richardson is our guest. We're going to be right back. Stay right where you're at. Ladies and gentlemen, to this edition of the Hagman and Hagman Report, our guest, Joel Richardson, joelstrumpet.com. Folks, go there, and he, he has got some amazing information in the media section, his store for his books as well. You can go on Amazon or WorldNetDaily, WND uh, as well. He is perhaps, as far as I'm concerned, the foremost expert on Islam, Islamic eschatology, uh, 
uh, that I've ever read. And his books are precise. He is a Bible uh, scholar. He knows his Bible. He's been teaching. He's a talk show. I mean, Mr. Richardson has done so much. So please pay attention. Before we get back to Mr. Richardson, I do want to make mention. We asked, uh, the, the folks, you've been so great. The listeners have been so great with, uh, uh, supporting our sponsors, MinutemanStove.com. That's MinutemanStove.com. They want to give something back here uh, to you, the listeners. So listen to this. They're running a special from now until um, early next week. We're, we're going to say from now until midnight on Cyber Monday, they have a special for you, something like this. You place an order for a Minuteman rocket stove, great stove, from now until midnight Cyber Monday. Use the promo code Hagman, and you will receive a Miniman Rocket Stove plus a free forever size, one half inch, one hundred thousand strikes uh, fire striker. Now, this is not the small one. This is the this is the big one. All right. You you also get a free one pound bag of uh, Maya sticks, which is just fire starting tinder, and also free shipping on the order. And if you know the shipping cost, man, they they could be. I mean, shipping costs shipping is expensive. All for their regular price of one sixty nine ninety five. This represents a sixty three dollars savings. It's never been offered before. So go to minutemanstove.com. That's minutemanstove.com. Use the promo code Hagman for this special and save sixty three dollars. Just type in Hagman as a promo code, and they will take care of the rest. This is a great deal for Christmas if you celebrate Christmas and give gifts. So this is beautiful birthdays, any occasion. MinutemanStove.com. We want to thank them so much for offering this savings to the listeners. Again, our guest is Mr. Joel Richardson. We are talking, we left off right before the break about, well, the coup. And uh, you can read, too, uh, Mr. Richardson has got uh, an article on WND, and it, it gets into detail about this. And there's kind of a, a little primer there as well as the, uh, about the GOG, Magog bundle as well. But, uh, just back in September. So go ahead, sir. Pick up where you left off in terms of the coup and, and what happened with that and the mechanics of that. Sure. Well, one, uh, one character that I have to mention that I, I didn't mention is uh, a fellow named Fatula Gulen. Uh, Fatula Gulen is a Turkish a Muslim cleric, a preacher. He was known as the, the weeping uh, imam because he would, he would have such passion when he preached. He would, would cry and really just had a huge following throughout Turkey. Well, uh, it was uncovered in some sort of old grainy videotapes that he was talking about the need to infiltrate the Turkish government and infiltrate the arteries of the system until you have absolute power and take over. So... He had been gunning for some years to try to, you know, get his people into the government in order to take over the secular Turkish government. Uh, as a result of that, he uh, he was going to be arrested. He fled to, of all places, rural Pennsylvania, where he's been living uh, been since there. the 90s. Yeah, I've you been know, you've been to his place? Yep. Yeah, I haven't been there. I heard it's quite a swanky pad, but... Um, in any case, he's living out there in, in sort of, you know, uh, exile, uh, allegedly protected by American, uh, some CIA agents that helped sort of vouch for him and get him here and so forth. Uh, regardless, the point is, you know, he was this Islamist who had his people in the government. Now, the AK party, AKP party had really ridden the backs of the Gulenists. These are the followers of, of Gulen. 
and uh, they had they had rode to power to the top all of these Islamists that had been in the government. Well, what the coup was, and whether it was a legitimate coup or a staged coup, um, I don't think we can really establish that for sure either way. But the government claimed that these Gulenists were trying to uh, to spearhead this coup and kick the AKP party out. Really what this was was a turf war between the ruling government Islamists and the Gulen Islamists because they, they're both very cult-like. They both, uh, you know, sort of revolve around following this one man, either Erdogan or Gulen. Many of Gulen's followers think that he is the, the, the Islamic Messiah figure, the Mahdi, uh, that you mentioned earlier. And so, essentially, uh, after the coup, the, the, the current, uh, president, Erdogan, used this as an opportunity. He has, you know, since the coup just a few months ago, he's arrested or fired or, you know, removed well over a hundred thousand people throughout the country. All of his detractors, all of his opponents in the, in the government, I mean, I mean, in the military, in the judiciary, over close to 3,000 judges in the education system, teachers, all the way down to just regular students are disappearing. Um, journalists, more journalists now are in prison in Turkey than any other nation in the earth. And so what you've had is the final, the final straw, if you will, in the complete consolidation of absolute dictatorial power of President Erdogan. And unless, you know, barring some sort of a, uh, you know, physical a heart attack or, you know, something along these, these lines, he will be the undisputed leader of Turkey at least uh, for the next uh, 12, 13 years or so. They say at least until 2029 he will stay in power. And, you know, it's one thing you go, okay, well, this is very similar to what Putin did. You know, this is not uncommon. There are so many parallels between what Erdogan has done over the past several years, but most particularly over the past few months, and really the rise of Adolf Hitler. Now, I'm always cautious, you know, we should always be cautious to compare anyone to Hitler or the Nazis. It's, it's a very uh, tired and overused analogy. But right. legitimately, the, uh, the parallels are striking. Um, because, you know, with, with, uh, with Nazi Germany, you have this, it was sort of a one-off uh, entity. You know, you had you had this German nationalist Aryan movement. With Turkey, uh, you have an Islamist nationalist entity. It's it's not just uh, a nation with a strong military. Turkey does, by the way, have the largest military in the Middle East. Um, an incredibly strategically important piece of property. You know, as demonstrated by history, by the fact that they were able to rule the Middle East. For 600 years, but this is the first time in history that we've had such an Islamist nationalist hybrid arise, you know, in our midst. We've seen nationalism, we've seen the devastation, uh, an expansionist sort of imperialist cult-like nationalism. We've seen that with Hitler, but what we're seeing emerge in Turkey, the potential, the potential for it to be something even far worse. Uh, than Nazi Germany is is very legitimate, and that's not that's not overstated, because if the greater Islamic world, the greater uh, Sunni Arab world, is able to sort of be brought under that sort of paternal umbrella, that neo Ottoman umbrella of Turkey, as you know, used as an excuse to sort of bring peace and stability to the region, uh, 
then we could be dealing with something on a level that we've certainly never dealt with uh, in my lifetime or your lifetime. So this is, you know, this is sort of the backdrop. Again, just from a geopolitical perspective, if you're a military, you know, if you're uh, in the military, if you're in intelligence, any of these things, we need to be paying attention to what's unfolding right in front of us. And unfortunately, we're still functioning. Many in the government are still functioning from the paradigm of 10 years ago. That these guys are largely moderate, they're more secular-oriented, they're our greatest ally, they're part of NATO, you know, all of these things. And you go, okay, that was, that was fine 10, 12 years ago. But those days are over, and we need to wake up. Uh, all right. <clears throat> and it's interesting you compare his rise to that of Hitler. The, the, there's parallels. I understand that, and I understand the, uh, you know, we all we all have to use caution when we make those comparisons. It's, it, it's done... Um, Without uh, a sensible regard these days, in many, in many occasions. But now, Turkey is a is a NATO country. Turkey is, a, and I know that there has been um, geopolitically. I mean, we supposedly, as you rightly state, that I, I, I think we're behind behind the times with respect to Turkey geopolitically, from a military and even um, a diplomatic point of view. But, um, I mean, is this, with okay, let me just kind of back up a little bit. Is this the way that we have treated Turkey to date? Is this um, because we're not paying attention, or is this deliberate? I don't want to go too far in the, into the weeds here, but, man, it just seems like we are playing into the hands Reading your book, we're playing into their hands almost as as a Western power, the the, the greatest Western power in the world, or the greatest power in the world, America. You know, it's a difficult it's a difficult one because, to a degree, Turkey really has the Western world over a barrel. Um, you know, we've got in the uh, in the east, there's the um, the NATO uh, military base, the Indrulik, uh military base, and I forget. The number, but I want to say they have twenty or thirty nuclear warheads there in Turkey. This was a big concern during the coup. Is well, what's going to happen if this guy just says, "Forget you, NATO." You know, are we going to go in there and uh, you know the whole base, the electricity, the base was shut down, and they, you know we're going suddenly. We go, man, we've got a potentially you know Islamic dictatorship with suddenly thirty nuclear warheads. Well. Thankfully, that's stabilized. But, you know, in terms of American military presence in the Middle East, we do. We rely on Turkey in terms of airspace, military bases, all of these things. Again, the piece of property that is Asia Minor, it's one of the most incredibly uh, strategic pieces of property in the earth. And now, on the other hand, you look at Europe, okay, well... Uh, all of the Syrian refugees are flowing where? They're flowing into Turkey. We've got roughly 2 million Syrian and uh, Middle Eastern refugees in Turkey. Well, who controls the spigot? Who controls the faucet, you know, the flow of refugees pouring into Europe? Well, it's Erdogan. So, you know, with regard to the EU, he's saying, hey, we want EU membership, which, of course, then allows the Turks to flow virtually unabated into, into Europe. And if they don't if they don't go along with that, he says, fine, I'm going to open the spigot and let the illegal refugees pour in. And so, you know, he has he has Europe over a barrel in that regard. And, you know, with with the Americans, with the United States, 
we're also in a difficult position because if we want to be engaged in Syria, if we want to be engaged in Iraq, any of these places, Turkey is one of the most important, uh, you know, entities that we have to sort of um, play nice with, and yet they're emerging as potentially one of our greatest future uh, enemies. You know, and this this really is the the nature of American foreign policy. We create our enemies of tomorrow today. And, uh, you know, we did it with the Taliban, we did it with Saddam Hussein, et cetera, et cetera. And I've been saying for years, we're doing it with Turkey, we're getting behind them, we're still treating them like the model we want to replicate. And if we just had a little bit of foresight, we could have seen that, that they're already, they were already, you know, seven years ago, getting out of control. And so it's a, this is a difficult chess match. You know, the Middle East is always a difficult chess match. But with this transition in Turkey, it's making it much more difficult. So, you know, certainly our leaders, they're in a difficult position. They need to be wise as serpents and gentle as doves. Um, and I'm not sure that we have that right now. Well, in preparation for tonight's broadcast, I, I was doing some research, and it's and again, your, your books, folks. We're talking with Joel Richardson. He's a New York Times best-selling author. Uh, go to joelstrumpet.com. Take a look at what he's got to offer. But in preparation for tonight, I found this. I'm, I'm going to just uh, read this. It's only three sentences here to you. This is from. Uh, well, I'll, I'll tell you where it's from afterwards. But uh, uh, folks, listen to this. Uh, Turkey. Well, this is a summary of, of a strategic paper. I'll just give you that much. And it starts out with this. Turkey sits astride Europe, particularly in the Balkan, or particularly the Balkans, the Middle East, and the former Soviet Empire, now known as the Commonwealth of Independent States. In addition, since 1980, Turkey has compiled an enviable record of economic growth in uh, democracy and politics. For these reasons, U.S. policymakers have assumed that Turkey, a steadfast U.S. ally, is especially well poised to play a role as an anchor in the North American or North Atlantic Treaty Organization, NATO, of course, uh, as a positive pole of attraction for the Middle East and the southern republics of the USSR, and so on. It just goes on that way. The reason I brought this up, as you were talking, I, I recalled seeing this earlier today. This is from 1993. Our diplomacy and strategy has not changed from that. From 1993, hasn't? That well, it's beginning to change. You know, we're beginning to wake up. And I think even with I think even with Obama, he was beginning to realize that there was a transition taking place. Um, but, you know, as I said, several years too late. I mean, the signs were all there several years ago. And it's really only just the past couple of years that they've begun sort of treating Turkey with a little bit more of an arm's distance. Um, but, uh, you know, as, as has been typical with Obama, he's been, uh, he's been outplayed. I mean, he was outplayed by... Um, Raul Castro, for goodness sakes, you know, by, by, by sophomores. And Erdogan is a, uh, you know, a far more crafty fox than some of these Indeed. banana republic dictators. So if I'm hearing you right, just to summarize what you've already said with respect to Turkey itself, just to be clear now, the coup that took place, that, without really much of a doubt, that was an engineered, orchestrated coup from within in terms of this is a way to clean house, right? I mean, that's kind of the consensus here. Whether or not it was engineered or whether or not it was a controlled coup is hard to say. But the it has absolutely been used to ensconce and completely consolidate the AKP uh, Recep 
type Erdogan, President Erdogan's power. So we're, I'm not exactly sure whether or not it was a legitimate coup or, again, it was clearly they knew it was coming. Now, whether or not the people that carried it out believe they were carrying out a coup or whether the whole thing was staged, I'm not sure. But regardless, the end result is that we have the rise of an undisputed dictator in one of the most strategically important nations in the earth and clearly in the Middle East. Okay, understood. Now, we, as we look at things, we look at Obama's ascension to power here in the United States, um, eight years of reign from the Oval Office, his, what I would view as a very pro-Muslim, pro-Islamic uh, uh, agenda, and the Department of State, especially under Clinton, in particular, as we saw with the Arab Spring, uh, the birth of ISIS under uh really i mean it was, uh, to to me all evidence indicates in my investigative experience would indicate that we have uh we're responsible for the creation of isis when i say we i'm talking about the western power structure and in particular uh the united states along with the uk and france and of course um headed by obama and the clinton state department that's my view anyway but with the formation of isis uh, or even with the Arab Spring, the realignment of power here. How does that play into what we're talking about, the bigger picture? Sure. Well, you know, again, the Middle East is always, you know, it's, it's I said, a, a chess match, but it's kind of one of these multi-leveled, you know, Star Trek chess boards. It's, you know, if, if only it was as simple as a chess match. And so really, you know, it, to, to kind of simplify it, it's it's... It's a regional Sunni, Shia, sectarian Muslim conflict, yes, but it's a little bit more complicated than that. But just to kind of keep it simple, um, the primary two players have been contending for control of that northern swath of the Middle East. It really is Turkey and Iran. And, you know, this goes all the way back to ancient history. You look at, in the book of Daniel, you had the, the, the demonic principality, the power of Persia, that was in conflict with what was called the the Prince of Yavon. It's often translated as Greece, but Yavon actually referred to uh, uh, Western Asia Minor, the modern-day Turkey, and it extended over into modern-day Greece. But that whole sort of Aegean Sea, that Mediterranean area, that, that included, again, that whole the whole Western half of Asia Minor. So um, you're dealing with these demonic spiritual principalities that control these two parts of the world. Well, you know, back in the book of Daniel, you have the conflict between the Medo-Persian Empire clashing with the Alexandrian Greek Empire. You move forward a little bit in history, again, those two principalities are clashing, and you have the Roman Empire clashing with the Parthians. A little bit further, you get the Byzantines are banging heads with the Sassanids, and then it was the Ottomans and the Safavids. Well, today it's, again, Turkey and Iran. It's just, you know, this this regional conflict has been taking place for thousands of years now. It would be unusual if it wasn't taking place in our day. And um, and so the Iranians have been using all of these proxies, you know, to... The, the Iranians are... They play the long game. I mean, they are some of the most slick players. They've been accomplishing everything that they wanted to accomplish, but they're very patient very intelligent, very, you know, cultured. They know how to play the game. So, you know, the Iranians, in order to extend their arc of control over over the Middle East, they've 
been using, well, of course, since we removed Saddam Hussein, took out the Sunni government in Iraq, they've been using the Shia majority government in Iraq. They've been using, of course, Hezbollah in Lebanon, and they've been using Bashar Assad in Syria, who's an Alawite, which is a sect of Shia Islam, or at least it's close, it's most closely related uh, to Shia Islam. And so those are the primary proxies that Iran has been using, of course, as well as the Houthi rebels down in, in Yemen. Um, but now Turkey comes along, and in order to sort of jump in the game, they used ISIS. So ISIS, in the same way that Iran was using all of these other proxies, Turkey, their junkyard dog was ISIS. And yes, you know, a lot of the responsibility falls on uh, the American project in the region, again, because we looked at it, and our primary, the primary entity that we were going after is Iran. We think they're the greatest regional existential threat and so forth to Israel and to the West. So we're going after Iran. We sort of facilitated these so-called rebels, um, John McCain, Barack Obama. There's no question they were behind it. But Turkey stepped in. And they gave logistical support to ISIS. They gave, uh, I mean, they were shipping weapons, driving weapons in right over the border. These ISIS fighters were coming back into Turkey and getting medical treatment. These kids were being recruited in Istanbul, hopping on a plane, flying down there to Antioch, to Antakya, rolling right across the border. You know, Turkey would put on a show and arrest two or three of them as 10,000 walked across the border. This whole the past three years, you know, every time Turkey makes a show of saying, we're going to go after ISIS, who do they end up bombing? They end up bombing the Kurds. And so there's no question that Turkey has been using ISIS in its larger regional conflict against Bashar Assad, again, a proxy of Iran, against the Iranians, and against the Kurds. The Kurds are sort of a, uh, a wild card in all of this. But, uh, you know, this is what's unfolding, is it's it's a larger proxy war between Iran and Turkey for control of the heart of the Middle East. And, um, and now it looks like, uh, you know, with the Kurds and the help of some, a little bit of help from the United States, it looks like um, ISIS, maybe within the next few months, it might be several months, it's actually going a lot slower than the Iraqis had hoped. Um, ISIS, at least in its the heart of its, you know, the caliphate is about to go away. But I tell you, everybody's involved. You know, Iran, they've got their people on the ground. Turkey has their people on the ground. And this really is, it, this is not just ISIS. This is a larger regional conflict with the potential to pull the United States and Russia into the whole thing. And this is a, this is a big, big uh, conflict that's unfolding right in front of us. It is, okay, um, and, and I want to ask this. Folks, we're talking to Joel Richardson, his website. Joelstrumpet.com. That's Joelstrumpet.com. It's featured right here. If you're watching this via YouTube Live, it's right there on the uh, on your screen. Um, by the way, uh, Mr. Richardson is a New York Times bestselling author. He's a filmmaker, teacher, host of the weekly television program, The Underground. He lives with his wife and five children. He travels all across the world teaching on the gospel, uh, living with biblical hope and the return of Jesus. Again, Joelstrumpet.com. Folks, visit that website. But, but Mr. Richardson, um, in the three minutes left we have before we go to break here, two minutes left, um, Russia, the 
Russia in this whole conflict, in this whole mess, where did that, I mean, are, we're being pitted against Russia in the larger sense, right? I mean, or, or am I missing something here? Because all of these proxy wars that are going on, ultimately, at the end of the day, on one side, you've got the United States. On the other side, you've got Russia. Am I correct in that assessment, or is that absolutely too simplistic? Well, we're clearly the two biggest dogs in the fight. Um, but we need to understand Russia's primary purpose for being in the region is control of some of those energy pipelines that crisscross there in Syria. Uh, you know, their economy relies on uh, energy. And so that's their primary, primary reason that they are there. You know, they're, they're aligning themselves with Iran and thus Assad. And so as long as we understand their purpose, I think... If we're wise, we can navigate without there being a larger regional conflict. But again, it's a powder cake. One, one little mistake, and you know, you could have the, the eagle and the bear uh, going at it, and that's not something that anybody wants to see. Uh, you know, it's the election's been a nightmare enough. I don't want to see. <laughs> I don't want to see World War Three, but it's it's definitely possible. Well, you know, on the other side of this top of the hour break, we're going to be talking, in fact, I'm going to be asking about General Flynn, about the election, about how that affected or it will affect in your estimation what's going on um, uh, geopolitically with, with respect to Turkey and other parts of you know, how, the, how everything kind of fits together. And And you really have written a great book in the Islamic Antichrist. Although, again, I picked it up with the idea, I, I thought to myself, you know what, I know that I just don't believe that the research would suggest an Islamic Antichrist. But you make such a compelling argument. You make, so, I mean, it's well founded in not just research, but scripture. Um, I'm re, really rethinking everything. So you've, uh, you've picked up a, a fan, uh, and a student, if you will. We're talking with Joel Richard, Joel Richardson, his website, joelstrumpet.com. Folks are going to be right back. Stay right where you're at. Joelstrumpet.com. That's Joelstrumpet.com. Our guest tonight, Mr. Joel Richardson, New York Times bestselling author, filmmaker, teacher, husband, father. Um, if you go there and, and go to the store section for his books, um, grab, grab the three books that he's got, grab the bundle. And educate uh, yourself. There's so much information, but also take a look in the media section. You'll see Joel Richardson on with Glenn Beck, and it's against that backdrop. When he, uh, you may remember this on Fox News, where Mr. Richardson compares uh, the Islamic eschatology or the Islamic end times with the Christian end times, the Bible versus the the Quran or the, uh, the 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 ideologies or the beliefs, and they're mirror opposites. 
I guess I would describe it that way. But but take a look at the media that uh, Mr. Richardson has been so generous to offer all of us, and it's against that backdrop which we're having this conversation. And then, of course, his book, The Islamic Antichrist. But, Mr. Richardson, uh, uh, thanks for holding it. And also, I want to lead this hour off by you mentioned the elections and, and the election of Donald Trump. I, I'm not sure we're done totally with Obama, but let's move ahead a little bit against the backdrop of what what Islam teaches and what Christianity teaches against that backdrop um, I want to ask you with a Trump presidency, the Trump foreign policy or National Security Advisor General Michael Flynn controversial as he might be or is having um, attachments to lobbyist groups and or lobby group uh, that uh, has attachments to Turkey perhaps, interest in Turkey he, he recently gave this wonderful endorsement of Turkey and uh, Erdogan. What are we looking at here? Are we looking at a blindness? Are we looking at a bias? Are we looking at uh, something even worse? This is a good question. And, um, you know, I've expressed my very strong concern. Now, to be clear, I voted for uh, Donald Trump and I'm rooting for him as a Christian and praying for him to continue to put wise counselors around himself. Um, some of his uh, choices have been fantastic and I've been very encouraged. Uh, I had the chance to meet Mike Pence a few weeks ago. was uh, very impressed with uh, Pence. Just I couldn't be more happy that he, he's the VP pick. Mm-hmm. With Michael Flynn, um, it's one of these that could go either way, and I've I've expressed that I think he should actually be let go. I'm willing to potentially reconsider that, but let me just uh, express some of the reasons that I've had for concern. The uh, in light of all that we've just talked about, again, you know, uh, President Erdogan in Turkey, he's been giving sanctuary to. Uh, Ismail Haniya, the the two leaders of Hamas, you know, who the terrorist organization, terrorist leaders, they've been where they've been living the past several years. These multi, multi, possibly billionaires, they've been living in Turkey. Erdogan's been giving them refuge. Um, you know, you could go on and on and on about all of the reasons why Erdogan is not someone you should be praising. Well, on the very day of the election, uh, retired Lieutenant General Michael Flynn writes this fairly. Uh, strong opinion piece for uh, an op-ed piece for The Hill. And in that, he praises Erdogan as, as our true friend, someone who really needs our help. And he's arguing for extraditing uh, Fatullah Gulen, the fellow that we talked about earlier, that's the, the Islamist preacher that lives in Pennsylvania. And I don't have a problem with extraditing Gulen. I have no... <laughs> No, uh, you know, appreciation for him. I would say Flynn expresses some some ignorance on the topic. He talks about uh, Gulen as if he's an Osama bin Laden. Now he is an Islamist. He wants to see Islamic government, but he has to understand that Turkish the Turkish version of that is much different. You know, Gulen's vision of a, a, a Turkish Islamist government is much, much, much different than Osama bin Laden. So his, his comparison of Gulen as a terrorist, he's not a terrorist. A tur- the Turkish model and method to attain the caliphate is very, very different than the Sunni uh, 
Saudi Wahhabi, Salafi, you know, Osama bin Laden, ISIS sort of model. So he, he makes a lot of statements that I go, you know, and, and, and listen, you know, he deserves my respect. Uh, you know, someone who has served the military deserves all of our respect. And so I don't mean to be condescending in any way. But for someone who claims to be such an expert, and, and there's no question, he has far more military experience than myself, etc. But he makes a lot of uh, beginner's mistakes. He makes a lot of just factual errors. The fact that he's praising Erdogan is greatly concerning, particularly in light of the fact that he does have a business called Flynn Intel, and it is a lobby. It is a lobby uh, organization. They're registered as a lobby group with Congress. The people on staff are registered lobbyists, and he has a recently just um, cut a you know a, a fairly lucrative contract with a Turkish businessman. When the coup was unfolding, uh, Flynn was at an Act for America meeting, um, you know, Americans Against the uh, Islamization of America. I'm not sure what the acronym stands for, AAC. In any case, and he was given a speech, and he was speaking of the coup as if it was a positive thing. Well, that, you know, of course, that was good. But here we are just a few months later, and he's speaking in glowing terms about Erdogan. So that right there is very, very concerning. Not just that he's praising a dictator, not that he's praising a man who is supporting these Hamas leaders, who is himself uh, one of the primary supporters behind ISIS. You know, I mean, just sort of open secret within the intelligence community, um, but also just some of the fairly ignorant statements that he makes. That's also one of my concerns. And so... You know, with the past eight years under Obama, we have just this administration that wouldn't even acknowledge Islamic terrorism, just, you know, to the frustration of everyone who who is aware of and understand what's unfolding. And that drove us nuts. But I'm also concerned that, you know, and I'm reading through the field of fight right now, um, General Flynn's book, and I'm, I'm about halfway through today. It's a real, it's actually a very easy book to read. Um and I, I've yet to sort of, you know, wrap up my final conclusions here. But he he tends to be taking just a completely contrarian approach to Obama's approach. And normally we would say, well, that's good. But, you know, that's not always the case. You know, you don't just take the exact 180-degree opposite um, perspective just because Obama was wrong. I think we need someone who acknowledges Islamic terrorism, they acknowledge the threat, they acknowledge the danger, but they also need to acknowledge that not every Muslim out there wants to enslave or kill us. And he makes statements like that. Uh, back in February, he retweeted uh, some video, which, uh, you know, some people might like it, but, you know, he, he retweets this video and he wrote, he wrote, fear of Muslims is rational. Now, fear of Islamists, fear of terrorists, fear of jihadis, um, you could say that's rational. But fear of all Muslims is not rational. As a Christian, there is a lot of fear out there. And a lot of the Christian, you know, the, the church is infected by the fear. We're not to be people of fear. We're to be, as I said, wise as serpents, gentle as doves. We're to be aware of the threat and the danger. But we're not to be people that fear every Muslim that's out there, because the majority of Muslims, and again, I've been involved in outreach and dialogue with Muslims for years, I can tell you, they tend to be far more ignorant of their religion than most Christians are. They tend to be far more ignorant of the Quran than most Christians are of the Bible, and that's saying a lot. So, you know, we need, yes, we need someone that is 
aware of the danger, aware of the threat, but we need somebody that has wisdom. And, uh, and, and you know, that's not to say that Obama's approach was wise. That was just, it was, it was ludicrous. But we need somebody that has a little bit more tax. So, you know, there, there's just a handful of red flags with, with General Flynn. I personally think there are a handful of other military uh, leaders, different folks out there that would be far better, far more far better qualified, um, I don't mean in terms of experience, but just in terms of their approach than General Flynn. So those are my concerns. Don't confuse that with the crazy, you know, attacks against Trump by the left-wing media. It's just that as a Christian, I voted for Trump, and I believe it's our responsibility to, to now hold his feet to the fire, to hold him accountable, and to pray for and push for strong, wise, godly you know, um, informed men that would come around him and give Trump wise counsel because, you know, and, and I've said this before, I don't think that Trump, is, I don't think he's had a lot of people that have told him no throughout his life. I think he's been surrounded with a lot of yes men, and we need some strong people that will come around him that will give him solid advice. So no, I, I, I hope that that, that uh, yeah. is received. Well, well you know, and. and Everything you said there, um, I, I, I agree with, and, and some people mistake uh, my—I I, don't—I don't know what it would be—my enthusiasm to really fight the terrorist threat, the Islamic terrorist threat, to acknowledge and fight that with the indictment of all Muslims. But one thing you said there, and I have to go back to this because I think this is something. This is a mindset of of a lot of Americans. And I'm a uh, look. I'm a Trump supporter as well, uh, and I voted for him. And I'm glad he's in. The alternative would have been devastating, in my view. But having said all of that, um, when you look at this, uh, the ideology of Islam, we know it is. To me, I, I've often described Islam as a cult. Okay, now that's my. Those are my words. But you've got a, a large segment of the Islamic population, and I just want to drive this home, who really don't know. I mean, they're Muslims, yes, but they really don't. They're, they're not adherent to the Muslim, the strict Muslim faith. And I think that that's important to understand. You know, the Christians who are um, ignorant of the of Christianity, and I'm. I'm painting with a broad brush here, but we, the ignorance on the Christian side is nothing compared, as you said, to the ignorance on the Muslim side. Is that kind of true? I mean, you know, uh, or is that too simplistic, I guess? Yeah, no, no, it's absolutely true. It's absolutely true. And there's many reasons for that. One of which is that throughout much of the Islamic world, many, you know, Arabic is one of the least spoken languages. And yet the Quran is written in Arabic. And many Muslims will actually even memorize the Quran, but they memorize it in Arabic. Many of them who don't speak Arabic, they learn how to say the words, and yet they don't know what they're saying. And so, you know, they, the you know, Muslims really believe that the Arabic is sort of the divine language. And so in, in nations like Indonesia or Pakistan or India, places where they don't speak Arabic, many Muslims only study the Quran in Arabic. And so that right there is part of the reason. But, you know, also Islam just, you know, let's say like the Catholicism or, you know, any other sort of major religion, it, it's a very culturally um, embedded reality. So you have people that are atheists, but they would call mm -hmm. themselves Muslims. 
because they grew up Muslim, but yet they don't even believe in God. Um, the Pew Research Firm did a, a very thorough study on Islamic doctrine and what they believe several years ago, and it was like, you know, on average about 90% believed in heaven and hell and, and, things, and things like that. And you go, wait a minute, how can you... How can you believe, how can you say you don't believe in heaven or hell and, and still call yourself a Muslim? Well, because they identify culturally as Muslims, but not necessarily religiously. And so, and so, yeah, there's no question. I mean, you know, I was just, I was in Iraq just several weeks ago, in northern Iraq, in the, in the Kurdish areas. And, you know, the Kurds, they're Sunni Muslims, and there are some that are more devout than others, but I mean, they are some of the, some of the greatest people. Um, you know, I, my friend, I've got many, many families that live there with their kids, American families, missionaries. They live among the Kurdish Muslims with their, with their families, with their little babies and, and, um, you know, without any fear. These are some fantastic people. And so, you know, I find most of the people that cast every single Muslim as somebody that just wants to behead you when they have the right opportunity, I find that most of them don't actually know Muslims. And, and right. again, to be clear, you're talking to the guy that wrote the book, The Islamic Antichrist. You know, I'm not someone who is soft on Islam. I understand the dangers, the threats, the realities, but we need to be realistic in our approach. Exactly. And and that's, I think there's a lot of ignorance out there. Ignorance is not, I'm not uh, being pejorative here when I say that, but it's really a lot of, of, of ignorance with respect to the the with Islam and, and even within Christianity. So I understand that. Um, this might be a good time to ask you this question. We're getting just inundated with emails from listener questions, and I want to thank Jackie for bringing this to my attention. This represents uh, actually Gary listening live from England, uh, from the U.K., is represents probably a, a dozen or so questions. Thank you, Jackie, for bringing this to my attention. Um, about... Uh, the difference, since we're talking about this, uh, Gary and others want to know the difference between, and, and I know you address this, but and, and this is basic, but if we can just take a step back here. Uh, he, he writes, I'm confused, and I know others are, Gary, uh, about the difference between the um, Islam of Saudi Arabia, uh, that form of Islam versus the Islamic State form of Islam. Um, what's the difference there? He writes, uh, uh, I, I, again, I'm confused. I can't tell the difference. And if you could help me out on this, I'd appreciate it. And Gary from UK and others as well. Thanks for the question. Joel, what is the difference? Sure. Well, you know, in the same way that within Christianity, you know, if you walk into a, uh, a black Baptist church in Charlotte, North Carolina versus a Pentecostal church in Alabama versus a Baptist church in Michigan or a Reformed church in Minneapolis. You know, there's many different kinds of Christianity. Well, likewise with Islam. There's many different kinds of Islam. Now, the a lot of the Sunni, the Sunnis are the majority sect. They make up about 87% of the Islamic world. Among the Sunnis, you have a few different sort of schools of thought. One of the schools I'm calling Saudi Arabian Islam. You could call it Wahhabism. You could Sometimes they call it Salafism. They're a little bit different, but they're basically the same thing. And this is a school of thought that is, is founded on the teachings of um, a guy named Ibn Taymiyyah and Ibn al-Wahhab. These are two guys from Saudi Arabia. And this is the Islam of Al-Qaeda. This is the Islam of ISIS. This is the Islam largely of the Muslim Brotherhood, although they tend to be uh, a little bit different. Um, they're students of these Egyptian preachers, Said Qutb and Hassan al-Banna. Um, but 
this is, you know, much more jihad-oriented um, approach. Um, some of these other Islamist groups in Pakistan and India, um, Jamaat al-Islamiya and Taglibi Jamaat, um, that they all sort of have these Islamist fathers, these thinkers that they look to. And usually they're their um, conclusion was that the reason Islam was not prospering, Muslims were not devout enough, and they, were, they needed to use jihad, they needed to use violence to establish their end goals. Okay? Now, in Turkey, the, uh, the primary Islamist father of Turkey today is a guy named Said al-Nursi, and then his student was Fatullah Gulen. Okay, so these are the two guys that sort of articulate and and um, have fashioned the, sort of the, the thinkers behind Turkish Islam. Turkish Islam took a different approach. They looked at the the uh, the weakening of the Islamic world, and then rather than following the model of the Saudis, they said, "No, we need to approach Islam in a way that's much more cultured, much more geared towards science and progress and modernity." They use things like interfaith dialogue, a lot of service. And so it's a kind of Islam that is much more Western-friendly. I'll call it Islam decaffeinated, you know, or Islam light. But it's a kind of Islam that, that in order to confront the West, they weren't going to use jihad and violence. Rather, they were going to create an Islam that we would welcome with open arms. We would roll the red carpet out and say, this is wonderful. This is what we've been waiting for. And so, you know, Turkish Islam, again, they have the same end goals. They want to control the world. They want to see Islam be supreme and so forth. But they have a very different vision of what that looks like. The Turkish model tends to be, you know, much more moderate, much more peaceful and so forth. There's both elements of violence in both. But the Saudi Arabian version, it's it's a much more purist and a much more violent and a much more dangerous form of Islam. So I hope that's helpful. Indeed it is. So what are we doing as a nation supporting, and why is Saudi Arabia our ally? <laughs> you know, I just finished a book that will be out just after the turn of the year, and I deal extensively with the Saudi influence in Washington. And, you know, a lot of people are unaware. They know that there's a large Saudi influence in Washington. But I actually make the case that Saudi Arabia is hands down the single greatest foreign influence in Washington. It is the single greatest propaganda um, outreach in the history of mankind. When we look at the money that Saudi Arabia has spent over the past 40 plus years to spread the most violent, the most intolerant, the most hateful form of Islam that has ever existed, again, Wahhabism or Salafism, no propaganda, no evangelistic campaign, nothing in the history of mankind compares to the amount of money that the Saudis have spent to spread this radical form of Islam. If there is a mosque in your city, there's a there's a you know ninety five percent chance that it was built and paid for by the Saudi government. And you go, well, how can that be? Well, you look at the Clintons. How much money did they receive from the Saudis? Well, it was close to forty million dollars. Well, is that because the Saudis are just these great philanthropists? They just they just really believe in the Clinton initiative? No, they were buying uh, they were buying favors. They they were trying to buy influence. Well, you, you go. Is it just the Democrats? You know, there's all kinds of evidence that Barack Obama was was groomed early by some uh, Saudis, and that he perhaps had his 
his uh, education paid for by the Saudis. Um, you can go back to Jimmy Carter. He was bought and paid for by the Saudis, and he ended up becoming one of the most virulent anti-Semites. And here's an American president, a Nobel laureate, and he's writing... Um, He's writing these anti-Israel diatribes that were, you know, they were so bad that people who had been on his board for 30 years were dropping off saying this was just, uh, you know, a dishonest plagiarism, you know, filled with dishonest fake quotes and so forth. And you go, okay, so those Democrats are all corrupt. And then you look at the Bushes. Any, If you take all the money that has been received by the Clintons, by Obama, by uh, Carter... It doesn't even compare. It's not even a fraction of the amount of money that the Bushes have received from the Saudis. And so it doesn't matter. Republican, Democrat, every American president for the past few, for the past generation, uh, has been in the back pocket of the Saudis. The money it's that they have money. buys influence. Yeah. I mean, as an investigator, one on one, you follow the money. And that's what it's all about the money. And in this case, too, the money and the um, energy. In, in terms of uh, uh, cheap energy, uh, cheap oil, right? Uh, that, that, and that, that's the, the to me that's the basis of, I mean, as you pointed out earlier, uh, with Turkey, the pipelines, the Syria, the pipelines, it, it all comes down to that, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's the lifeblood of of the Western world. It's the lifeblood of you know the, the industrial uh, society. Um, and, you know, it's just every time we fill up our car, we're putting money into one of the most vile terrorist-supporting entities in the history of mankind. And, you know, again, everybody has their price. Everyone has their hmm. price. And I'd like to say, you know, that it has only affected one side, but it has affected everybody. There's not a single lobby. I, I don't, you can say, you know, the, uh, you know, a, you can't name a bank. You can't name international bankers. And you go, well, wait, wait a minute, bankers. The Saudis have outdone them in terms of their corruption of Washington. The, the numbers, when you look at the numbers, nothing compares. And, you know, why do you put $30 million, Why do you give $100 million to an American president? Well, it's because you expect something in return. That is an investment. And they have gotten... They have gotten they they have gotten a great return on their investment, and unfortunately, it's led to the the absolute nightmare that we're seeing in the Middle East right now. That's a direct result of the uh, of the Saudi lobby in Washington. Man, this is incredible, folks. Our guest is Joel Richardson. His website joelstrumpet.com visit there and of course check out the media section check out the store obviously where you can order his books by the bundle that's that's my advice to you uh this man is knowledgeable i mean beyond anything we're so blessed to have him on and thank you sir um for coming on because you are just a wealth of, of information now the next segment we're going to be talking to you i'm going to be asking you a lot of questions really kind of honing in on the islamic antichrist aspect and, and then um asking you too about what your what your passions are but but uh for the next two minutes here you said you were in iraq um you were ministering to Muslims, or can you tell me what you're doing in Iraq uh, with respect to uh, your ministry? So I'm uh, I work with um, a ministry. It's called FAI Frontier Alliance International, and we're working with the Kurds. Um, you can, and, and by the way, I'll, I'll just give you the, the website. It's uh, FAI Mission dot org. It may be missions. 
it's either mission or missions.org. Um, we're working with the Kurds, and so right now, of course, the Kurds have been the only ones that have been fighting ISIS. Well, I was actually there on September 11th, so that was now uh, two months ago. Mm-hmm. And we were establishing a medical outreach program, so you had about 10,000 Kurds uh, on the northern um, front fighting ISIS, you know, ready ready to take Mosul, and we're there. They're just getting ready to launch. And these 10,000 Kurds, these guys, they, they're, they're civilian soldiers. You know, they, they rotate, they leave for a week or two, go back to their houses. These guys had one ambulance, wow. one ambulance and, you know, a few medics and one doctor. And when these guys were getting shot, the ambulance would come from here, Bill, which was about two hours south, drive up there, pick them up, drive them back. Um, you know, they're bleeding out. Most of the soldiers didn't have any medical training. So what we're doing is establishing um, a medical outreach there where we're just serving the Kurds because, I, as I said, I've got several families that are up there, uh, you know, living with the Kurds and reaching them with the gospel. You know, they want to want to be a gospel witness uh, in their area. And so go, how do you bless your neighbors? <laughs> well, the neighbors are fighting ISIS and they're dying. And so sometimes serving Christ is as simple as trying to help your neighbor stay alive and serve them in that way. So, mm. you know, that's what, wow. um, you know, that's what FAI is doing. And, uh, you know, that's something that you want to support in prayer or finance. You know, and I'm always, there's a few ministries that I'll, I'll always say, hey, here's a ministry you can get behind. But you can look them up. Um, in fact, I just, I just posted one of their videos on my website. Okay. So if you just we go to the first... Yeah, we will we will do that. Folks, you're listening to Joel Richardson. We're going to be right back. Thank you, sir. Hang on for the break, and we'll be right back. Joelstrumpet.com. That's Joelstrumpet.com, and check out the the entire website. His articles. In fact, I would urge everyone to to look him up on WND. His um, especially as we're talking tonight, his uh, article back in um, September, September seventeenth, I believe it was, that appears on uh, WND about uh, Turkey and what's taking place there. The source of the Turkey, the source of the Antichrist by Joel Richardson. And uh, the subtitle, of course, Joel Richardson identifies ominous developments in the former Ottoman Empire. That's sort of the basis of what we're talking about. And then the Islamic Antichrist. Before the break, we were talking about uh, FAI mission. We're going to be getting back to um, Mr. Richardson and that as well here momentarily. Folks, if you haven't done so already, if you want a great gift to give to others, again, for the holidays, or if you just want a great read in addition to Mr. Richardson's books, of course, but if you, if you want to, if you want to delve into the world of really great, thrilling fiction, T.C. Joseph, he takes us into the lives of three families in a world where conspiracy theories and Bible prophecies collide. Now, I was really not a big fan of, you know, fiction in that, in that realm, but T.C. Joseph does a remarkable job in, moving through history, recent events, and, and events just on the horizon. 
that are, I mean, it's just an amazing work. He's got three books. In fact, it's called This Generation Series. It's on Amazon. Book one is Precipice. Book two is Pentecost. And book three, which I have, and I just finished it, is Penance. I'm not even going to, I'm not going to ruin it for you. It, it is a fantastic read. And you know what, folks? You can use these books as tools to awaken other people, family members, friends to the perilous times that we face. Folks, go to This Generation Series on Amazon.com. T.C. Joseph's This uh, this Generation Series on Amazon. And again, book one, Precipice, book two is Pentecost, and three is Penance. They fit together nicely, and you're going to be pleasantly surprised. Again, a great gift for family members, friends. Great reviews by Kirkus and uh, by others, uh, Blue Ink reviews as well. So that's great. Now, uh, right before the break, again, our our guest is uh, Joel Richardson. We were talking, you were talking about being in Iraq, and I noticed that, uh, and by the way, FAI is uh, Faith, uh, uh, I'm sorry, Faith Alliance International. I, I'm stumbling myself here. Faith um, Alliance International. It's FAI.org, or FAIMission.org, FAIMission.org. And I, lo- I love the, uh, uh, I-, I love the uh, mission statement there where you're just bringing the gospel to those unengaged in, uh, <laughs> It's it's a it's a wonderful work that you're that you're doing. So I'm going to thank you for that. And certainly, you were in Iraq and uh, were, were you were you ducking bombs? I mean, seriously, I, I, that sounds like a really trite question. But I mean, my goodness, talk about being on the front lines near Mosul. I mean, goodness. Well, it, you know, when you're behind, uh, when you when you're you know in the Kurdish areas, it's relatively stable. Um, and so, you know, again, we were there getting permission from some of the generals up there on the northern front uh, to establish the medical outreach, as well as meeting with some of the leaders from, I'm sure you're familiar with the, the Yazidi peoples, sure. um, who, you know, they're just waking up to the fact that in August of 2014, when ISIS swept across, and, well, it was in June, but then it was in uh, August that they took Mount Shingal, that it was it was a massacre that for the Yazidi people is about four hundred thousand of them in Iraq, about six hundred thousand globally. Um, this was the equivalent of their Holocaust. Uh, there's tens of thousands, perhaps as many as a hundred thousand, were wiped out, and, and now they're finding all these mass graves. And you know, here's this sort of very unusual kind of pagan, ancient Middle Eastern pagan peoples that lived up there in northern Iraq. A lot of people weren't familiar with them before ISIS. And just a few years ago, these missions organizations said these people are completely unreached, unengaged with the gospel. You know, they didn't have any Christians who were ministering among them, you know, giving them the invitation to the feast and telling them about Jesus and this sort of thing. And then this terrible tragedy happens. And, you know, as I said, they suffer this massacre. And now it's a few years later, all of the NGOs are pulling out because this is an old crisis. And so, you know, we have the opportunity also to minister to the Yazidis, and, and you know, the doors are opening, and and just to serve them in, in this time, and essentially documenting, you know, in a similar way to Steven Spielberg documenting all of these World War II Holocaust survivors that are now passing away, he's been he's been filming and archiving all of their stories. Um, 
you know, there's got folks over there that are collecting DNA samples from these girls that they're rescuing from ISIS and interviewing the survivors and documenting as much evidence to present to the International Criminal Court because these these uh, these guys are now going back to Europe. And, you know, they, they were involved in this, and they're sleeking right back into England and Europe and France. And not many people are actually there helping them. So, you know, there's a saying... Uh, it's a proverb that says the Kurds have no friends but the mountains. They've been mistreated by the Arabs, by the Turks, by the Persians. They've been mistreated by everyone. And we're saying we believe that there is one who's a better friend than mountains. And so we're trying to be his ambassadors. And um, and that's what's going on in northern Iraq. But no, you know, it was, wow. in fact, one day we actually went swimming. <laughs> we went swimming in Lake Mosul. <laughs> So, no, there was no. We weren't ducking any bombs, but now things are obviously a little different with the offensive, for sure. Well, well, okay. So, as we drive this home, um, especially with the with the Islamic Antichrist in in your book, which I would urge everyone to grab a hold of, as we drive this home, we see all of the geopolitical events taking place: the election of 2016 with Trump, the um, the Flynn. Uh, National Security Advisories, advisor advisories, shall we say, all of this, and, and we're obviously it seems like we are barreling down this this road of end times prophecy pretty quickly, and and, and we're you know Christians are looking for answers. I'm looking, I'm trying to, I'm investigating, I'm I'm looking, I'm, I'm reading everything I can because I do want to know. Where's the Antichrist going to come from? You know, uh, I, and, and again, I understand, and, and our audience is really far ahead of the curve. Uh, but but your um, the uh, presentation you gave uh, on Glenn Beck with respect to uh, the Islamic, the Mahdi versus, um, or, or the Mahdi and the Antichrist may actually be one and the same, for example, and uh, how that compares to Christianity, I guess. So uh, I I said all that to say this. Where are we at here? Are you, are you saying, watch Turkey for the rise of the Antichrist? Are you saying Erdogan is the Antichrist or could very well be based on the criteria of, of the Christian Bible? Um, are, are we at the, at the, we, you know, help me out here. Are we at the end times? Well, you know, until just a little over a week ago, I was convinced that, uh, the man of sin was Hillary Rodham Clinton. Um, but but now I'm having to rethink everything. Just kidding. Um, I don't personally believe. That, <laughs> I don't personally believe that that uh, Erdogan is the Antichrist. Um, I think there are a few specific biblical criteria that he does not match. Daniel seven and eight say that he emerges as a little horn or a small horn. He emerges small and he rises to power. I don't think that fits Erdogan. It speaks of him using peace to conquer. Um, I, I think Erdogan represents the, the nature of the Antichrist during the latter portion of his career. Boastful, arrogant, you know, he, he's a perfect model for that. Now, let me just say this, because I know, you know, within biblical prophecy, there's a lot of different opinions out there, whether some say the Antichrist will come from Europe. I'm convinced he will come out of the Islamic world. Listen, um, we as a church are a city on a hill. We've got watchmen on the wall. We need to have watchmen on the eastern wall, on the western wall. That's what watchmen do. They pay attention to all sides, and uh, and they're prayerful. So, you know, I'm not saying abandon the western wall and everybody come over to the eastern wall. 
I'm saying we need to be paying attention to this. There's very legitimate biblical basis for the idea that the Antichrist would come out of the nations that surround Israel. In fact, that's the overwhelming place that the uh, biblical prophets point to. Now, there are a few different possible scenarios as far as how the Antichrist could emerge. My, my guess right now, based again on my analysis of the biblical data, is that we will see a major regional war with Iran invading the Middle East. And that match could be lit any day. You know, that's something that could happen any time. And after a period of time, Turkey will respond and crush Iran. And then it's out of that period um, that the Antichrist will arise from one of the four areas of this sort of new Turkey. I believe there'll be sort of a new expanded Turkey that will break up into four. And out of one of those four will come the Antichrist. And that's, uh, I know I'm just kind of skimming a rock over the surface of that. But I believe he will come from Turkey, but it might not necessarily be the exact Turkey that we have today. Because some passages seem to point to him coming from the area of Syria. Um, Others point to him as coming from the area of Turkey, um, or at least from, you know, a Turkish uh, entity. And others potentially point to him coming from the area of Iraq. So, you know, it's it's difficult, and we need to be careful of being overly dogmatic, but... Um, I think there is some very strong evidence from him coming from that part of the world. We need to be paying attention, and we need to be peering into the prophets, into the scriptures daily, and then looking out at the world and, and recognizing the signs as they unfold. But I definitely think that the the contours of the landscape, as they were described by the biblical prophets, are coming into very clear focus. Okay, and very well said, by the way. And, and that's... You know, you know, I, I, although I was a big proponent of, of, you know, the Antichrist coming out of the UK, for example, the city of London, and I was really, I gotta tell you, I was really, um, and, and to some extent still looking at the bloodlines, you know, what, the, the tribe aspect, the bloodline aspect of things. You really have gotten me to look at the scriptures for answers through your book, and, um, so, so I thank you for that because it's pointing me back to the Bible. I, I need to ask you this question because I've often said that, that Syria, as it is today, and as, Syria is to me, is going to be the flashpoint for World War Three, for the hot war. For the now, you're saying, however, Turkey and Iran, Iran is going to invade the Middle East. What role does Syria have to play in the end of times or the scenario that you described? Well, you know, it's funny. I mean, you said that it will be a flashpoint. It, it already is. I mean, this yeah, is, the, you know, of course, it all began in Tunisia. You know, this, this, this young guy, this fruit vendor, lit himself on fire, and you had the Arab Spring, and, and that inferno, you know, was put out throughout most of the Middle East, but it's still raging in Syria. You know, the UN is calling it the largest human, um, uh, what are they calling it? Human crisis, um, uh, Mm-hmm. Humanitarian crisis. Uh, in, in human history. I mean, in terms of the, the number of IDPs, displaced peoples, refugees, it's this is tremendous. I mean, millions of people displaced living in refugee camps. So the fire, the, the inferno that's raging there, it's not going out. I mean, this is the thing. You know, I've always wanted to visit Syria. I've never been to Syria. When it was, This was a gem of the Middle East, a beautiful Middle Eastern nation. You know, you or I are never going to be able to visit Syria in our lifetimes. Syria will never be what it once was. It is 
a heap of rubble. And, you know, even after we drive out ISIS, you know, there's still, you know, villages and different things. But, I mean, much of the major cities are just like post-World War II Europe. And so in terms of where, you know, their role that they're going to play, I mean, obviously we've got Isaiah 17, talks about Damascus being turned into a heap uh, of ruins. A lot of people think that that's going to be fulfilled any day. I would always counsel people with regard to that chapter to read the full chapter because um, the larger context of these series of oracles in, um, it's like Isaiah 13 through 21, that's a judgment against Moab, judgment against this one, judgment against Damascus. It's all largely within the context of the day of the Lord. But specifically, Isaiah 17, it also speaks not only of the destruction of Damascus, but it speaks of the ruin of Ephraim. Ephraim mm-hmm. is speaking, it's another term for the northern kingdom uh, of Israel versus the southern kingdom of Judah. And so it's really speaking of, let's say, modern-day Galilee, and it says that it's it's void of people. It's described as like an olive tree, where you only have a couple olives left at the top of the branches after the gleaning, even after the harvest and the gleaning. There's just a couple left here or there, and that's what the people will be like in northern Israel. So in my opinion, the complete destruction of Damascus is probably ultimately going to be fulfilled right at the end, because I don't believe Israel will be in that state, you know, any day soon. I believe that that describes the, 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 the state of Israel at the very end, right before the return of Jesus. But clearly, you know, the battles in the last days will revolve around that general part of the world. Okay, now in the context that you described, Damascus, ruinous heap, what, what are you saying with respect to that? It's... Um if you can expand on that a little bit, because I've always looked at that prophecy to mean that it's either going to get nuked, and I know this is very simplistic, or, or it's going to it's going to become uninhabitable. Is that right. your? I mean, I mean, am I am I oversimplifying it, or is this? Uh, I mean, what does that mean? I mean, in, in, in yeah, the no, I mean, it, 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 yeah, I mean, it, it clearly uses the language of never to be inhabited again. Now, whether that's a nuke, um, you know, it, it could be, um, or whether it's just, you know, the, the, the very long, slow, gradual decay that we've seen over the past um, few years. Of course, you know, there's still parts of Damascus that, you know, you, people are going to work every day, and they're going to restaurants, and, you know, we don't see that part of it. There's still, you know, millions of people living there and so forth. Um, sure. So we're not there yet. But I, I guess what I'm saying is I believe that the ultimate destruction of Damascus doesn't actually happen until the very end. Now, you know, prophecies can be difficult. Sometimes one sentence consolidates, you know, 2,000 years. Unto us a son is born, uh, you know, a child is given. The government will be on his shoulders. The increase of his kingdom, there'll be no end. You know, you know, two sentences just covers a few thousand years. So, you know, timing is difficult, but it seems to me that the timing context of, the, of that particular chapter would seem to be toward the very end of the tribulation. But again, uh, you know, I could be wrong on that. Okay. All right. Well, that, no, that, that, Lays it out pretty well. Um, here we, we only have about uh, ten minutes left of our uh, of our time together. And, and again, I thank you so much for your gracious gift of time. Our guest, uh, folks, and if you're joining us late, Joel Richard, Richardson. His website, excuse me, uh, Joel's Trumpet dot com. Um, 
the one question I had for you in preparation of tonight, I, I wanted to ask you, of the events of the last, we'll say, this year, 2016, what one event or perhaps series of events in in your heart of hearts and your spirit, your prayerful consideration and your research really um, drove home to you the premise of your book, The Islamic Antichrist. That, I mean, if, is there any one or two events or series of events that really you stopped and said, man, I'm right based on my research and, you know, it's, it's coming. I can see it coming. Is there anything that sticks out in 2016 or everything in 2016? You know, I, w- I would just speak in very general terms, which, you know, the, the, the premise of my book, to, you know, to summarize it is this, is that the Bible, the context of the Bible is thoroughly Jerusalem and Israel-centric. You know, the whole story revolves around the city of the great king and the land that he promised to Abram and his descendants. And therefore, that's the part of the world where the closer that we get to the return of Jesus and the fulfillment of God's unfolding promised plans, that the principalities, that the demonic powers of the air will rage, and that they will gather the nations against that city. And so for that reason, we would expect the closer that we return to Jesus, the attention of the world to return to the Middle East. So you know, once we begin with the context that it's all about Israel, you look at the words of the prophets, and they say, you know, I will gather the surrounding nations, the surrounding peoples. I will gather the, the neighbors down against Jerusalem. Then you go, oh, well, wait a minute. I always thought the Bible was primarily about the United States. <laughs> you know, I thought, <laughs> you know, my world revolves around America. I thought sure. God's world must. You know, so once we understand the context of the scriptures, then you go, okay, this makes sense. And what's becoming clear, not just this year, but over the past several years, is that the attention of the world is once more returning to Israel. It's returning to the Middle East. And this is what we would expect, and this is how the scriptures describe it, is that Jerusalem, it's like it's like a magnet, you know, like a, uh, like a hurricane that pulls everything into its eye. The closer that we return, to, the closer that we get to the return of Jesus, the more that the constellation of the nations will be pulled into the controversy of Zion. And that's exactly what we're seeing. So I know I'm speaking in general terms, but it is the return of the attention of the world to the Middle East that is confirming that, that, you know, this is where it all began. It began in Genesis with the conflict between the children of Abraham, Isaac and Ishmael, Esau and Jacob, and that's where it all ultimately ends. It's not to say that Europe and Asia and, you know, Africa and South America are not relevant, because of course they are, sure. but that the, the, the head of the spear revolves around the heart of the biblical world, and that's the Middle East. Wow. Well, well said. I just have two questions here that uh, we compiled from a multitude of questions from our listening audience, all the way from Australia to Vancouver, British Columbia. Thank you for all of your emails, by the way. Uh, the one question here, which seems to represent a number of people, do you believe through the 2016 elections, do you believe that Donald Trump represents, the election of Donald Trump represents a reprieve for the United States prophetically? You know, I'm not sure. Time will tell. And, um, you know, I think it, it's certainly a reprieve from the encroaching, uh, you know, religious intolerance of the left and so on and so forth. Whether that will prove to be good for the church is yet to be seen. Um, you know, I, I was 
I know there's been a lot of prophecies. There's been people saying, you know, this is God's judgment. Others say this is God's blessing. I don't know. Uh, you know, I prayerfully voted for Donald Trump, and I tend to think that God is going to do something and shock us all in a good way. But I'm very tentative in the head assessment, and I think we it, now is not the time to stop praying. So I'll Amen. just uh, I'll leave with that. <laughs> and, and the closing question is this: uh, many there's been rumors, there have been rumors about uh, uh, the uh, our renewed friendship with Israel, and of course the message from Netanyahu to uh, Trump and such. There, there's a lot of rumors out there, a lot, a lot of um, uh, hubbub about perhaps moving the embassy, American embassy from Tel Aviv to uh, to, uh, to uh, Jerusalem. Do you see that taking place? And if so, would that like cause this cataclysmic shift in the... I mean, would that, would that just be like a nuke, metaphorically speaking, going off in the Middle East? Well, you know, they're saying uh, that Huckabee's going to do that. And, um, you know, I I certainly hope they do. It could cause all sorts of conflict, again, with our Islamic, uh, quote, allies throughout the region. Um, But, you know, there's some things that are, there's some fights that are worth fighting. And I would put that in the category of one that is. Um, But we'll see. We'll see what happens. I mean, even beyond that, it's been interesting to see the Sanhedrin calling for Trump and Putin to help rebuild the temple. I mean, you know, this thing could end up being bigger than bigger than we thought, but um, we'll, we'll, we'll cross that bridge when we get there. Mr. Richardson, I, I want to thank you so much for your gracious gift of time tonight. Is there, aside from your latest book, which uh, which is when you say late, when I say latest, I mean it, it came out uh, about a year, what a year ago, eighteen months ago. Um, yeah. Uh, the Islamic Antichrist. Is there anything else, the bundle that you have at the store, is there anything else that you'd like to, that I failed to mention that you want to mention with respect to uh, your work that you want to showcase? No, you know, if if you're interested in tonight's discussion, then, yeah, I have a bundle, which is my book, Mideast Beast, uh, a five-part DVD, The Antichrist, Turkey, and the Coming Caliphate, and then a debate uh, that I had on this very topic of the Islamic versus Roman Antichrist with Dr. Tommy Ice a few months ago, and uh, that's probably the best bundle that would pertain to what we've talked about tonight, but um, yeah, if you click on my store, there's all sorts of resources there. All right, sounds great, and people can support you there. Uh, as well as your ministerial efforts as well. I would urge that. Uh, and they can do that. Is that through org? Is that how people would do that, or would they do that directly through your website to support your ministry? If they want to support me... If they want to support me, there's a link that says partner. And, uh, so click on that on the top says partner. FAI is a ministry that I work with and I support. If you want to support them and their work in Iraq, um, the top, the top post on my blog has the information to do that as well. Perfect. Sir, thank you so much again for, for your gift of time and thanks for being our guest. God bless you. Thank you for all you do. And you know what? I got to thank you for, uh, for really honing my sights on the end time prophetic events with with your with your book the islamic antichrist god bless you my friend thank you hey bless you it was great being on and uh, be happy to do it again sometime indeed you have an open invitation god bless folks that right, was, well, uh, joel, joel richardson from joel's trumpet.org com. i i gotta tell you man what a great what a great man what a well-informed well-informed and i mean well-informed guy from his books, uh, incredible works, 
very biblically based. And what he said about Jerusalem and Israel concentric. Boy, is that ever true. And it's, it's so easy for us here in the West, meaning America or the UK or Australia, wherever you might be, to, to really look at prophecy through the lens of, of the West. But isn't it all about Israel? Isn't it, uh, doesn't it all kind of go back to that, to that land? I, I, I do think that, uh, that's what we have to do. We have to expand, or at least we have to look at it through that context. Wow, what a great interview. What a great guy. Well, folks, you're listening to the Hagman and the Hagman Report. Coming up, Stan Deo. What a great segue to Stan Deo. We've been, Stan's been talking about this for, for years, right? I, I mean, seriously, the Islamic Antichrist and looking at Turkey and looking at that whole geopolitical area, uh, the situation. So it's a great segue into Stan's time tonight. Stay tuned, folks, for Stan Dale from standale.com. And, of course, always click on the show images page there for uh, relevant images that we're going to be addressing tonight. Stay right where you're at. Come back with Stan. And Hagman report. Hagman flying solo tonight. Joe's taking some time, some leave time. Take care of some business, family business. He'll be back with us. Um, but in the meantime, taking care of business myself. Uh, Stan Deo every Tuesday is with us. If you haven't visited his website recently, do so. And let me ask you, why not? If you haven't gotten Dare to Prepare, you need to Dare to Prepare. I dare you to prepare. And also, uh, Stan's book as well. Holly's new book, Prophetic Peril. So let me remind you about that. You know, it's, it's, it seems like we're always talking about books, but it's obviously next to the Bible. You know, you got the Bible and, and, and on your front and center. And then, of course, all of the other books. And it's, uh, it's amazing. I seriously, I can never get too much information, at least on, on my end. Don't forget, folks, uh, this is the 53rd anniversary of the assassination of John F. Kennedy. You know, and uh, I opened the program with reference to that and some things that the, well, some information the CIA uh, dropped about that. Uh, folks, I'm going to direct your attention to masterpreps.com, masterpreps.com. You want an insanely, um, wow, uh, masterpreps.com, uh, the sponsor of our show, masterpreps.com, that's masterpreps.com. Take a visit there. Hard to find items, uh, items, uh, high quality items, made in America items. I mean, anything, everything you could possibly want from uh, cooking uh, utensils, uh, cooking frying pans to, I mean, it is, when, it'll blow you away. Absolutely. Eric said, it's insane. I mean, wow, look at the products. So masterpreps.com, welcome to the Hagman and Hagman Report family. But also, wow, how'd you do it? How'd you get all the, I'd like to see your warehouse. Okay, masterpreps.com. Again, welcome to the Hagman and Hagman Report family. Folks, visit masterpreps.com. Now, Stan Dale from standale.com with us. Stan, we had uh, two hours of, well, an hour, 45 minutes with Joel Richardson talking about the Islamic Antichrist. I was thinking about you the entire interview almost. 
your discussions about Turkey, I, you know, it's like every time I turn around, it's it's hey, you know what, Stan Dale, his research is looking good. Well, what did uh, what did he say in brief? Uh, did, did he say that uh, Turkey or Erdogan or uh, yeah, he, yeah, you know, he, he's uh, essentially uh, he his now his book, the Islamic Antichrist, came out in twenty late twenty fifteen. And it really took off in 2016. And the focus, and even um, the stuff that you talked about too, with the um, the Turkey being the source of the Antichrist, and the Antichrist, where I always believed, because of bloodlines and because of lineage, it would have to be somebody from the West, you know, from that Western royalty kind of thing. Never really never really buying into or research-wise looking at the Islamic aspect like you have and and through his work um, said, yeah, look at Turkey, look at Erdogan. If he's not, certainly he's not committing to Erdogan being the Antichrist. However, coming from that area, setting it up, being the, you know, could he could very well be. If he's not, he certainly is a good candidate for the Antichrist. But the, the Islamic Antichrist, like you've talked about in the past, and Turkey being the epicenter for the birth of that, that's kind of what he said. And then they said, hey, well, if you have any questions, ask Stan. <laughs> no, no, I'm kidding. About that. You know, um, we talk about the Antichrist, and we tend to, tend to forget there's an Antichrist and a false prophet that comes after the first beast. You know, the I I think from the fact that the, the first... Beast, the Antichrist, really. He is um, he's wounded severely and appears to come back from. Well, maybe he does. Uh, you know, look like he's alive again. And then the, but he doesn't have the strength, you know, the, or the power that uh, the second beast does, the, the false prophet. Because if you look in Revelation twelve or thirteen, I guess it is, the, the the false prophet does the numbering and causes all kinds of things that are terrible to happen that we attribute to the Antichrist. And for that reason, I think the the Antichrist per se, the first one, should probably be a weaker person than the, you know, politically and, and otherwise, than the false prophet. And to that end, I still am hovering over the Middle East saying that we must look at Saudi Arabia, young Prince Salman, and the, and the consortium he's put together, being the first beast, being defeated, being wounded terribly, uh, in an attack against Israel, the Psalm 93 war. And then what follows is Erdogan, who, you know, takes over the reins and using, you know, young Prince Salman as, you know, a, a figurehead. And what he tried to do goes to organize uh, peace and bring all the warring nations and Israel together. Because to win the Psalm 93 war, is this the right Psalm 93? Yeah, it is. Isn't it the one talking yes. about the, the, the war? Yep. Yep. Yeah, so, well, my so mind is gone today. I, too many things going on. Anyway, the the point is that Israel is probably going to destroy the uh, Saudi consortium that attacks it with nuclear weapons that will astound people, all the nations, in fact. And uh, for that reason, all the nations of the world will want a peace treaty, and the one who will ratify that will probably be the false prophet who takes over from the Antichrist because the Antichrist has been wounded and taken out of power. So anyway, that's just my thought. Um, I, 
you know, when you look on on uh, my show image page, I, I'm keeping those up there where I have uh, three pictures of about five possible antichrists, and you can click on that and read various things about them that might fit prophecy. But right next to that square, uh, it's underneath um, image two, about two lines in the middle, which cities in the Mediterranean region were built on seven hills. Mm-hmm. Now, whether it is uh, a uh, an Arab or Middle Eastern antichrist or not, these four cities, I think one of them will be the location of, uh, you know, his his strength or his, uh, his base of operations. Now, Athens, Greece. When, we, yeah, uh, when you say Rome, Italy, and for the listeners, people listening on Global Star and BTR, um, not uh, able to see the show images, I just want to explain. Um, the four cities, Athens, Istanbul, Jerusalem, and Rome. When you say Rome, I just want a clarification, then, then uh, you can continue. Do you mean Vatic- the Vatican or just Rome in general? No, in Rome the city, because Rome the city was built uh, on seven hills. Then there's a river to the southwest of it, or to the northwest, I guess. And across that river is where the Vatican's built. So the Vatican's not actually up on the seven hills there. However, a a base of operations and temple could be found in Jerusalem, on the old city, up on the mount, up on the mountain around it. Uh, and, and that would fulfill the bill in that it's built, uh, the temple is built on the top of seven hills. Istanbul, Turkey, one of the... Uh, things with Istanbul and Turkey is uh, Istanbul is a big city and you know it's built on seven hills but there are seven hills with a lot of dirt in between them so the hills are spread out it's not up in a tight little uh, package with Athens uh, you know in Greece uh, well uh, they're spread out as well and so when uh, when you boil it all down Jerusalem seems to be coming out ahead there um uh, so that because all the hills are so close together that it's really a raised area that is not so widespread as the others. I mean, uh, the seven hills are inside the old city, the old city walls of Jerusalem. And you can click on the various images that I've got there on Show Me's page and see that. Whereas if you look in Greece, uh, the mounts are they're fairly well separated and they're in, and they, they're in the middle of a plain. You know, and they rise up, but it's not like a city was built on those seven hills. Mm-hmm. If you get my difference, uh, the only one that seems to fit. Yeah. yeah, very the, important. The two of them fit it. There, there's there's Rome and there's Jerusalem, and and Rome uh, for the Vatican to be considered, it is well, the Vatican is clear across the Tiber River from it, so that's not it, unless the Antichrist builds on. You know the old Roman mound uh, where you have uh, you know Palatine uh, Palatine Hill and Capitoline Hill and those kind. Uh, so I I think we've narrowed it down at least in my mind. Uh, gosh, I don't know. I'm, I'm just looking at Istanbul again. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, Istanbul possibly could, but the problem I have with Istanbul is that uh, six of the hills are on one kind of stretch of raised mountainous area. The seventh hill, the, there's uh, the Lycus River, which is a, goes underground at a certain point there, but um, that separates the sixth hills from the seventh hill. So in the technical sense of the word, Istanbul doesn't qualify either. So we get back to uh, Rome and Jerusalem. So anyway, just, mm-hmm. you know, you can come through that and have a look at that. That's on there. I, I Very interesting. Yeah. Great research, by the way. 
Um, thank you for, for all the research you've done on that and keeping tabs like that, folks. Just go to standeo.com, show images, and click through that. Um, Stan's keeping tabs. So, what 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 has caught your interest here in the last week or so? Well, last start? week, well, since oh, what, the thirteenth was that Friday, I've oh, been yes. watching these these quakes mm-hmm. um, in. Is it Friday? No. Well, no, the 13th. From the 13th, what day was that? Saturday? Last Saturday? That was uh, Sunday. Sunday. A week ago. Yeah, uh, last Sunday. Well, a week ago from last Sunday. Mm, I can't remember. <laughs> I, I just know it was the 13th because, you know, I got up and turned on the computer and um, I got it was Sunday. Um, mm-hmm. And we we heard about that big 7.82 earthquake over in New Zealand. Mm-hmm. And I thought, wow, that's that's pretty big, you know. And I looked at the aftershocks, and because I get email notices from the GNS Geological and uh, Nuclear uh, Center over in, uh, well, I guess they're North Island, but they're all over the island uh, in New Zealand, and they send me updates on quakes over there as small as you know, like a Richter two. Well, I started getting flooded. I mean, like hundreds and hundreds of aftershocks coming in from that one quake over there. And I thought, whoa, what's happening here? That should stop. You know, we shouldn't have this kind of a flutter. So I started watching, and uh, every day, every day I was getting hundreds and hundreds. And it ended up with over 5,000 hits, you know, earthquakes there in New Zealand from that one quake. Mm. I was really impressed. So I I pulled them down, uh, and I've updated it today. You can click on the show images page there um, on an image uh, number four. And I've showed shown the earthquakes as blue lines, and over the big ones I've put their Richter scale, and then, of course, the dates are underneath them, date and time. Now, I drew um, kind of what's called a trend line, a, uh, an averaging line between all the quakes to see the general uh, pattern of what was happening. Okay, you had a 7.82, then uh, you had a, you know, a 5.85, then a 6.19 within a few hours, and then a 5.3, a 5.2, a 5.3, a lot of Richter 5s, and then you, you know, you wait about a day, and then you had almost Richter 6 again at 5.96. And, all right, then you have a few little aftershock 5s. And then you had a, you know, a 5.56 that was in a grouping of 5.38 and, you know, a 2.1. Then it quieted down for a bit. Then we had a 6.26 again after a couple of days. And then uh, a bit of a rest. And then we had a 5.36, 5.75, 5.76. Uh, 5.76, 5.75 earthquake, and then we wait another day and things calm down. Then we had a 5.7, a 5.78, and a 5.41 on a cluster, and then we wait almost well a little over a day, and then we hit a 5.04 and things kind of just settle down until today. Then we had a 5.5 and 5.69. It's going up again. Normally, aftershocks are kind of like, um, you know, um, when you hit a drum head with a you know a drumstick. And the after vibrations quiet down until there's no sound from the drum head. This is not happening. It is going boom, 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 boom. And I'm speeding up the time. But as a result, as a result, what is, I got into the GNS inside the forecasting and analysis from the engineers over there in Auckland. I said, you know, what's going on? 
And they said, you know, they wrote it out. They said, uh, there appears to be something unusual happening here in that we're having a number of aftershocks from other fault lights that are being triggered by that, that one over in Hawks Bay. You're the big one. And uh, I thought, whoa, this is interesting. So if you go next next image, the, the Capo Caldera uh, image number five, I've updated that today as well. And that shows uh, magnitude two to six, and the seven one as well down the middle of it, um, that have occurred uh, in the last um, nine days in uh, New Zealand. And you'll see down in the middle of the picture there, uh, a cluster of earthquakes around Hawke's Bay there in the uh, kind of northern uh, eastern tip of South Island where that big quake occurred. You'll see a lot of aftershocks there. You think, well, okay, that's a lot of aftershocks. Well, if you go to their site and dig down into that image, you'll see that they form patterns over multiple uh, fault lines. And then if you look up toward the North Island, which is, you know, basically a little bit smaller in area than the uh, South Island, uh, and flatter in places, you know, it's not so mountainous. But the shock aftershocks went right up through North Island to White um, Island, which is a volcanic island, and it's called the Super Island by GNS, uh, by the, the Geological Nuclear Sciences Group down there, because if it has a massive eruption or a huge earthquake attended by an eruption as well, it it uh, will unzip the fault line between White Island at the top end of North Island all the way down through Lake Taupo and possibly right on down to, to Hawke's Bay. It'll unzip the, the fault line that's a stress line trying to tear New Zealand in half. Um, if that happens, it will release the Lake Taupo Caldera, which will probably be more impressive than a Yellowstone impression, uh, eruption. Um, and since I did have a dream vision, a very, in fact, a couple of very uh, clear, lucid dream visions about what's going to happen at Lake Taupo when it erupts, um, and this fits in with what the local Maori people, the the indigenous people of, of New Zealand, say very soon that that Lake Taupo is going to erupt and it will kill a lot of the Europeans that occupy the island now and uh, give the uh, the island back to control of the Maori. Um, the Maori have warned the Europeans before, probably, gosh, mm, 120 years back, I think, uh, just roughly, um, when uh, there was an eruption uh, north of Lake Taupo that wrote a Anyways, this, the pink stones up north of there, uh, there was a lake there, and the Europeans were traveling by canoe across the lake, and they passed a ghost canoe full of Maori Indians, it looked like, uh, and they passed by them and, and looked at each other, and they took it as a warning that something was happening. It was a warning from the ghost ship, the ghost uh, canoe of the Maoris, and the next day, a horrific eruption occurred there and covered the pink steps, etc., with lava and just, you know, wiped out the area. So now that uh, the Maori have had this, and, and myself and several other people have had dream visions of what's about to happen there, whenever something like this, uh, inexplicable to science even, occurs, you know, my radar antenna go up and say, holy cow, look at this. Now, we'll keep watching this, but there's something else that has occurred which is uh, along with this, which is even more puzzling. And if you look at uh, image six, tremors rattle Hawks Bay, silent earthquake, and that'll take you to the article itself, not just to a photo. Right. And 
it's been going on since the 7.8 earthquake occurred nine days ago. This slow motion, quiet, slow slip earthquake shifting the tectonic plates. And, you know, it's so subtle that you're not getting detection on seismographs, but they've been measuring by subsidence in various places along the coast. Um, the, uh, let's see if I can find here in the article how they did see that. Uh, anyway, the, the GNET uh, system run by G, uh, GNS down there, uh, you know, the earthquake people like USGS, uh, did pick up a few subtle land movements of a, a few millimeters, and that's how it, they were able to track that something was sliding. And this is a worry. It, I'm, I'm sure they're not going to be telling a lot of the tourists this and, you know, some of the locals that are a bit skittish because they don't want to worry them. But anybody living in New Zealand has got to be pretty much clued up on look out for, for weird stuff because one day the island's going to get ripped apart and volcanoed to pieces and all kinds of stuff. I hope someone has told the hobbits that live down in the South Island, though. You know, Stan, it just seems to me that this is not... Uh... It was news the day it happened. The day after, it goes you know to page seven, and then it's off the it's off the wires. I mean, this is big news, right? I mean, oh, of course it is. It's real big news. Um, look, I go up to picture eight right above the, the, yeah. the picture I've got, and you'll see the fault. Whoops! I guess you can't get to it. The thing is, I'll have to change that. There's something wrong with the permissions on it. Uh, it right. It's got the fault lines. And um, the fault lines, come on, come on, let me have it. i got to talk to my computer because sometimes it gets a bit cranky and, uh, okay. <laughs> okay, That's come why on. We love well, I, you know, if I talk to myself, I'm in real trouble, but <laughs> That's all right. I can talk to my computer and get away with it. <laughs> oh, there it is. I see it. Okay. Yeah, okay. Okay, so it's called a permissions uh, error. Now, let's see if it works. Yes. Okay, if you click on image number eight, right. and um, that's in the article on the slow slip, but um, I want to bring it up to show you underneath all those earthquakes into the uh, kind of northwest of the earthquakes, all the fault lines they've got in that little tip there, and they're oh. close together. Uh, this is like... Uh, uh, Los Angeles, uh, San Diego, uh, San Francisco, all that area where the New Madrid, uh, uh, not the New Madrid, what am I saying, where the San Andreas fault line is, it has all kinds of parallel faults that are trying, one of them trying to join up to the Mexican fault line down there. Um, and, it, it, you know, near the Salton Sea. In fact, I think they're technically joined at this point. So all these parallel minor fractures like that that seem to just be uh, separate are converging now then they're 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 converting the seismic energy uh, as they converge and slip to the upper um upper right hand corner of the image there where the blue lines are showing up moving and some are going out to sea you know the hawks bay way this is telling you that it's trying to split the island right there and this is not news we you know i've seen this in a number of the of, uh, you know proper papers written by scientists uh, down there about what's happening to uh, New Zealand, and I've talked about it in your show for you know in the past uh, years about it and let it go because nothing was happening. But if you look at image to the right of that image nine, which again is in that article, you'll see the movement uh, in the direction and the millimeters, and basically you'll see that there's uh, you'll see that split with North Island all the fault lines that the red lines are moving one meter, and the blue lines are a tenth of a meter in the slip movement. 
but um, you know this is weird because it's showing strong movements long blue lines heading up through Auckland to the upper right of the picture and that is not as that's moving stronger and faster than those along the east coast of that island which means it's trying to twist the island in half which you can see that the little blue arrows are heading right for Lake Taupo, a little white lake in the middle of that. And I'm yep. telling you, it's going to split the North Island right along there. And the first thing I saw in my dream vision was this. The, the water got hot and raised up, you know, um, and then fell away as it drained down into the caldera underneath and hit all that hot magma, and next came the big explosion. And this this is something they're scared to death over there in the GNS area, uh, group. Uh, they don't want the water in Lake Taupo to drain off or evaporate away because it takes the lid off that's holding down the caldera at the moment, which is hot. Uh, but even worse than that is if there's a fracture in the dome and the water drains into it suddenly, it'll be a steam uh, explosion. The phratic type explosion. You know, I just, oh, boy. Uh, I, uh, I guess there are people down in New Zealand listening to your show. I hope so anyway, but um, oh, it's, yeah. <laughs> it's time to get your, your thinking cap on. All right. Well, in, in this in the same uh, topic of earthquakes, I, I couldn't help but notice that we had an earthquake, of course, in uh, Fukushima. Uh, yeah. Japan, you know, 6.9. Um, and, and then compare that to the earthquake of, or the, uh, 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 what happened in April of 2011 with Fukushima. Is this related? I mean, I know they're all kind of related, but is this, uh, is this something else that we need to concern ourselves with, uh, even more given the. Well, yeah, um, Yes, but probably for a different reason and perhaps a different uh, um, amount of concern or, or you know, the amount of threat here. I'm just pulling up the earthquake pattern for the Pacific at the moment as we speak here. And, and, and I, want to as, I didn't want to take. I apologize though. I took you off of New Zealand because I certainly don't want to minimize that. And that's that's horrific down there, and the potential, and of course, in line and you know with your with your dream vision, um, but. I'm, I'm looking at everything else. My goodness, it just seems like we're shaking, rattling, and rolling everywhere. Um, well, we are. And, uh, you know, going up to where we're talking about, toward the uh, the earthquake up in Japan, that is officially uh, an aftershock of the Richter 9 a few years back that hit the Fukushima coastline. And this is down, uh, not quite in the same location, but south of there. Right. Uh, but the earthquakes, fives uh, and five sixes and stuff, moved up from... New Zealand up that bridge there um, toward um, Raoul Island and over toward the, the south of the Fiji Islands and uh, these are all Richter fives or fives and ass moving up toward um, the fault line that then continues or the ridge that then continues around the left and up into uh, New Guinea and then into Indonesia and uh, the, you know and up into Japan. All that's on the same ridge of the southwest part of the arc of fire, the ring of fire in the Pacific, they call it. And uh, for that reason, it indicates to me that the whole darn uh, thing is, um, the ring of fire is becoming active. And should we worry? Well, here in the United States, it's been very quiet uh, over in the northwest along the uh, Juan de Fuca plate, when I say very reasonably so. 
And uh, if that starts to become busy, then I think we need to, uh, you know, get ready for a, a problem here as well. Um, wow. Where, uh, you know, we've got the whole West Coast to worry about. And I've, you've been seeing in the press, I'm sure, that the uh, geologists over in the West have been saying, well, look, uh, the, the big one is a lot closer than we thought because of all these new little interconnected fault lines. And <laughs> Stan, hang on a second here. We're up against the break. Stan Dale, standale.com. Folks, stay where you're at. Coming right back. All the far corners of the earth. Um, I want to say hello to Sam listening live in Auckland, New Zealand. Auckland, New Zealand, who's got a question for Stan. Where it, by the way, it is 3.30 p.m. Wednesday. It's tomorrow today in New Zealand. That's right. So, Sam, here's what I want you to do. Uh, you, you got to tell me what tonight's lottery numbers are, okay, on the East Coast. And let me know. We can game the system. I know we can. You and you and me about together. All right. Uh, I can hear. I can hear calling calling random events in your voice. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Stan, the question I'm, I'm going to pose to you this from uh, Sam listening live again. We're at three thirty in the afternoon on Wednesday. Uh, isn't that funny how that works? Uh, uh, hmm. here, here's this question to you, and it, it's kind of what you indicated. Not kind of it is. Uh, Stan writes, uh, we're in Auckland, New Zealand and felt the initial 7.9 quake last Sunday. Listening to Stan and starting to ponder, should we pack up and leave? Now, Stan, hold that thought, hold that answer, because I want to just mention this. I've got to mention this. Greenovative, um, folks, you saw me with the battery charger, the, the greatest little device in the world to charge batteries using salt water and magnesium pucks. I mean, greenovative.com, I don't know how they do it. I, I, I probably should go back to high school science, but nonetheless, Alan Riggs from Greenovative has, has developed the greatest little battery charger ever I've ever seen. I mean, this thing is so cool. It, it, it charges rechargeable batteries. And you know, we're talking about the earthquakes, no power. What if you've got no light? You, you, you don't want a little, or no hamster to run that little wheel, okay? Hand cranking, um, no sun. You don't need any of that. When planning for a disaster, must have is a good supply of batteries. Throw away, throw away batteries, they go dead after a while. You know, shelf use and so on. Look, rechargeable batteries are the way to go. Solar chargers, you need uh, a charger. Solar chargers can help, but only during the daylight hours. Hand crank chargers, you know, well, that, that's just whatever. The ideal solution is from Greenovative. It's the G-Mag Power Cell. It weighs 8 ounces, makes power simply by adding salt water to the unit. G-Mag is EMP safe. It's got an indefinite shelf life and can charge an unlimited number of batteries, and it's made in the USA. So Greenovative.com, and here's the best part of all. Between now and Christmas, listeners to the Hagman and Hagman Report, 15% off all purchases through Christmas, Using the promo code Hagman, greenovative.com, 15% off all purchases through uh, through Christmas using promo code Hagman. Take advantage of that. And, uh, hey, have at it. 
Christmas stocking stuffers, Christmas presents, Christmas, Christmas, whatever, birthdays, anniversaries. I'm going to get my wife one of those for our anniversary. What do you think, folks? No, she she like it. But Stan, Sam from Auckland, New Zealand. <sighs> okay. Thoughts? Let's uh, repeat the question again. Should he pack and get out of town? Well, Sam, yeah. look, the last time uh, when I first had that dream vision, I was uh, uh, in Australia. I'd just been to New Zealand, and I came over uh, to New Zealand, and uh, I was doing a, a live uh, show that uh, afternoon there with Art Bell at the nighttime here. And um, I mentioned the dream vision I'd had there, and, uh, uh, you know, because the sand was hot and steaming around the the lake shore of Lake Taupo where I was staying there at the motel, um, you know, I expressed that, you know, I felt an urgency about uh, not staying there myself that day. Well, the New Zealand Tourism Department, Sam, heard this, and they contacted me and asked me never to come back to New Zealand because it hurt tourism. Um, so, you know, I'm a bit hesitant at this point to say, Sam, get out of town, but I am saying it's probably not going to be a good idea if you'll look at the, the plot on the GNS website there, you can get it down there where you are as well as what I've got on my website today, but look on it, see the pattern of earthquakes, that tells you probably where the stresses are going to occur get out of the, you know, if you don't I don't know where you live, but uh, in Auckland, but I would say that you'll probably want to get up to the north of the island, up the little tongue, and, or at least be ready to get to that point or on foot to that point or on bicycle or something uh, should the roads be closed because there will be ash, I'm sure, everywhere. Uh, the damage is going to be extensive when the Taupo goes. And I suggest, since I don't know exactly when, uh, that, you know, you might uh, make you know an emergency getaway or go bag and... You and your family uh, know where to go and how to contact each other if you're apart when it happens. And, uh, you know, first aid and uh, water or a way to, to drink, uh, you know, salt water or something to make it pure, uh, this would probably be a good idea. Um, there are going to be sections of North Island and South Island that uh, survive, but it's going to be broken up just like the coast of California will be. So I'm not telling you just disappear and, and run for the hills. I'm just telling you keep an eye on this kind of stuff. If the earthquakes in the islands there, in North and South Island, both if from this Victor uh, 7.9, if they continue to have these periodic bumps of uh, fives and sixes and it starts to go at five, six and a half, six and a half, seven again, then I would I would be very aware of things day and night. Hope that there, the there you have it, Sam. You know, uh, Sam, it, it's difficult because if I was in Sam's position, I'd be asking the same question, and, and I'd be really wanting answers. And I don't know. I mean, I mean, I'd be, I'd be on my knees in prayer for guidance because that's a difficult. I mean, that's very. It, it, yeah. I, I mean, I'm thinking about my my home. If this, I mean, if I had to leave my home, my studio, my offices. Because of this threat, I mean that would really be a mind-bending journey and a mental journey, I guess. But so prayer, Sam. I mean, certainly put it to prayer. But but Stan, yeah. I mean, it's the reality of it. Is look what happened, and you know. Yeah. yeah. Well, Sam, look. You know, Doug is right. Yeah, definitely pray. Do all you can to prepare yourself to uh, weather such an event, but don't panic. Um, 
I know there was a sign on um, the walls at, at uh, Strategic Air Command when I was there. It says, if, if you can keep your calm when everybody else around you is you know, in chaos, you just don't understand the problem. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and this is where we are at the moment, I guess. But um, I think I do understand the problem. Uh, Long term, you know, I've advised some of my friends that want to move to New Zealand to get out of America because of its problems, political and otherwise. Uh, don't do it. Uh, it'd be like telling them to move to Yellowstone. So if you're planning a move, I would certainly move to the north of North Island and up that little, to the high ground up in that uh, little lake up there to the left. I don't know what that's called, but up above uh, White Island on the left. Um, anyway, um, yeah. you know, I, I, you are where you are, and, and the good Lord put you there for a reason. So if you're Amen. a believer, be sharing that with folks around who might need it to, that aren't there yet and won't make it out. You know where you're going, but where they're going is still uncertain. So if they're not believers. Which you said, Stan, to me, yeah, it's so important to me. Uh, God puts you there for a reason. I believe you're alive at at this point in time for a very specific purpose. You're where you're at for a very specific purpose. And uh, it's up to us to pray and discern that uh, the instructions. I mean, we have to play our position and, and keep in mind that we are, we're here for a reason. We're where we're at for a reason as well. Yeah. So thanks, Stan, for that. And then th- okay. Sam, thank you for listening. All right, go ahead. Go ahead. You know, it reminds me of, of a funny thing that happened when Ollie and I were down there in Taupo. Uh, we, we checked into the motel and uh, checking out everything in my dream vision I'd had, found Manuel's uh, motel right there on the edge of Lake Taupo, and I knew the inside of it like the back of my hand because of the dream vision. And uh, we had proven all this, gone in there, seen the hot safe, seen the the bar where the water's going to rise up to the, underneath the bar and people will be sitting on the tables when it happens. And, you know, and, and we walked in the, in the sand behind uh, Manuel's that night and it was steam between our, our shoes, you know, as we were walking along. We thought, this this place might be going tonight. Uh, look, there's no time to wake up the people at, at the motel because they've already gone to bed. We'll leave uh, payment on the, the, the table in our room and the, and the key, um, you know, and... Um, say sayonara you know uh, we had to leave town and so we uh, we packed up and raced back up to Auckland and uh, waited a day or so and didn't happen I thought well heck okay I'm being a chicken nervous Nelly and went back down to the hotel or the motel down there and they said oh are we glad to see you when, when you guys disappeared and left the money there we knew what you were here for checking on earthquakes or volcano we thought the island was going to go and everybody was in a panic so <laughs> 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 I guess we weren't too quiet about our exit somehow or another but anyway uh, well, but, you're not going to be uh, a candidate for uh, a position at the Chamber of Commerce at all anytime soon no no Department of Tourism definitely isn't going to either <laughs> yeah exactly. but, um, the um, uh, it was exciting. I mean, when we were down there, we uh, well, I got up Hollywood New up I got up in a single engine aircraft, and the pilot and I flew over a Ruapeo volcano, which is at the south end of Lake Taupo on the edge of the caldera. And I remember flying through the fumes coming up in the the uh, greenish bubbling sea at the top of the sea of sulfuric acid. And you don't just fly over in a hurry, so you're out there hanging over a boiling cauldron of sulfuric acid. And it was neat. Uh, it was exciting. It, it got the adrenaline flowing, and I was glad we got back down and had a nice margarita at the motel later that night. But anyway, yeah, I'd be sucking them down. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. I had two-handed. Wow. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. now back to Fukushima. 
the yes. the Fukushima Richter Nine uh, that occurred is was about fifty miles offshore, kind of just slightly north. Uh, well, it was in a, like a bay area in the south part of Sendai, where the bay is, and so it made it. A tsunami that came inland in, in, into the nuclear power plants. Well, the the uh, little cluster, little flurry, uh, swarm of earthquakes after that 6.9 uh, in the last day or so over in Japan was about 60 miles south of where the Fukushima 9 hit and about 50 miles from the Fukushima coastline where the nuclear reactors are. But because of the shape of the seabed underneath the coast there, the tsunami that would have been produced by this would have gone more towards Sendai up in the bay there and around uh, Ishinomakai. So uh, that area there would have taken the brunt of the uh, tsunami and uh, that's probably why it wasn't quite so uh, damaging to uh, any of the nuclear facilities that still are being watched over there. Um, the I'm just pulling the map up to look quickly at um, California because um, there, there is a lot of small earthquake activity in uh, California uh, and in Alaska yeah, the, uh, as well. The, the, those are that's really not that's a man-made earthquake by the pro-Hillary uh, supporters still stomping oh, around oh, out there. Yeah. If you've gone over to our website, uh, to the standeo.com, Holly has a little note she put in there uh, for today's news, uh, which kind of really kind of says it uh, about all those people, the strange ones over in California. you got to read it. I won't take uh, time uh, here. You can go, yeah, I go saw over that, and read folks. that. Standeo.com. Uh, standeo.com. Read the note. Because... Uh, it's... <laughs> Well said, well said, yes. Uh, but anyway, that's, yeah, um, that's the earthquakes, uh, you know, for real. Uh, I I still keep watching all this alleged fracking stuff, you know, the fours and fives that have occurred over in Oklahoma over the last few months here. And mm-hmm. I'm still thinking that we're seeing an edge of the craton, you know, the, sub, the, the shoe that our continent sits on that goes down to the uh, lower levels of the uh, the core or the mantle, sorry. Um, that craton edge goes right on up and stops at the uh, the Rocky Mountains, but I think I see signs of it going over and crossing over uh, uh, near Utah there, northern uh, Colorado and Utah, to join up with that. And at that point in time, I would start to be a lot more worried about the uh, California quakes uh, if I were living there. Uh, but being that most of those people are flakes over there, they're probably not going to be too concerned about it, just drinking their lattes and going la, la, la. But anyway, uh, watch the, 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 that area there between Oklahoma City and uh, Utah, uh, Salt Lake City, and watch the area of the uh, Juan de Fuca Plate. It's mm-hmm. kind of like a, a fl- or vacuum cleaner. It looks like an old-timey vacuum cleaner with a bag out to left and the suction part down to the bottom near the Watch for quakes down in the the lower foot part of it, the, the vacuum cleaner that would uh, suck up the carpet the area. That has undersea volcanoes that are active. It has uh, some geology down there that's quite uh, busy looking as far as uh, sub-oceanic peaks. And that could be where we see some activity that puts tsunami along the uh, Oregon coast and up to part of Washington, certainly down toward California. Anyway, keep an eye on that. That's enough on earthquakes. Um, All right. Uh, 
you, you saw where, um, uh, where Trump has come out and said, oh, look, like, uh, it's not my intention to prosecute her. She, uh, Hillary, she's had enough problems and that kind of stuff, right? Uh, and, yeah, and I've got some personal thoughts on that, but go ahead, sir. Yep. Well, Ann Coulter uh, had some thoughts on it, too, and uh, she says, now just think about it. She says, wait a minute, wait a minute. <laughs> if Obama's going to pardon her because she's going to get prosecuted by Trump, she'll get off scot-free. But mm-hmm. if Trump says, oh, I'm not going to prosecute her, then, he won't pardon, then Obama won't pardon her. She's cool and he won't get into trouble. And then when Obama's gone... You know, the Trump administration will jump on her both feet. So that makes more sense to me. It, it, it does me too. And, and of course, the way he said that, made that statement, of course, he's not going to do any prosecuting. Uh, it would be up to the Justice Department, of course, as well as, or, or a special prosecutor. But yes, I agree with you on that. Why telegraph or why, why send a message that you're going to go after her and so Obama could partner her? I, I agree with that. Um, and, and I hope that, I hope that's the case. Stan. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I know, I know. It's just bad. I, I, I know we're being naughty, but anyway. Have, have you been, Stan, on that same line, have you been following the, uh, the the real perversity with respect to the release of the emails and the, uh, some call it Pizzagate, some call it, uh, well, it's child sex slavery. And Have you been following that at all uh, with respect to the, uh, like, Comet Ping Pong? This is, now, I'm not alleging anything here. Uh, but the the allegations of a pedophilia child pedophilia ring um, being I don't I, Holly's been following more than I have I I was aware of that for you know some time back in the very uh, wealthy circuits of the, the planet uh, the Arabs right. especially the Saudis been involved in it and our politicians of course and this is probably one of the reasons that the Obama left wing machine had uh, control over so many uh, members of the uh, the House and the Senate. They were even Republican because they could blackmail them. Right. Um, you know, it, it, ah, gee, that is gross. That is just so it, it, gross. It's sad. I mean, it, yeah, it, it's ugly. It, it, it's it's the worst of the worst. I got so many emails. We did a couple minutes, or I did I did a thirty minute segment on it uh, yesterday, just kind of an overview, and it's really ugly. It is. You're right. It's gross. But you know something, Stan. I, I, when I was when I was researching this, and it's unfortunate. Um, this is worldwide. This is, and, and this is obviously crosses party lines. It's 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 a real. Well, it's hor- it's horrible. I, I'll just leave it at that. But yeah, I, I was just curious as to whether you had any uh, any thoughts on it. But uh, no, I'll I, be doing a I that I kind of skipped over because I'd been there and done that, and I thought I don't want to revisit that. So. Gotcha. It, it wasn't gotcha. pleasant. It doesn't right. solve the problem, but I just haven't got time to devote to that or all the other stuff. Listen, I wanted to, um, uh, you know, unfortunately, a lot of your listeners don't see the show images page. I don't know what percentage is, but uh, you can click on the things and show those that see it on YouTube. Um, image 13, the top left of the show images page. I want to explain to people the nonsense that has been the face on Mars issue. I want to show them what Thank really you. happened to form that face. So click on that image, and you will see okay. that it is a you know a, a series of like or a part of a rise or a mountain sitting on a plateau that kind of sloughs off like you know the edge of a piece of coconut or something. You see where the red arrow is is down to the normal flat part of the plane, the, the red right. dirt of. Sidonia area, 
The yellow arrow points to this very sharp edge up above that, and the green arrow points to the raised mound portion. Now, you know, people you know that didn't know better were saying, oh, well, it's a man-made face object, that kind of stuff. Go to image 14, and you'll see the image of an inside of a crystallized uh, stone from a volcano. It's called a geode. And where the yellow arrows are, are pointing inside of it, showing where the crystals form like little mountains inside the geode as it cools. Right. Planets and moons do the same thing. When they cool, they crystallize inside. Even the Earth now has inverse mountains pointing toward the magma core of our planet. When our planet eventually does cool, it too will have a hollow center, and there will be little crystallized mountains pointing in toward the center of the planet. Now, if you break a moon apart like that, or a planet, what happens is, it's like a piece of coconut on the right of the picture there. The green arrows show where the the inside of the geo to be, but it's like inside of a piece of broken coconut. The blue arrows show the, the black or the brown skin of the coconut and compare that to the outside of the geo, which would be the surface of the earth or a moon. Now, when you look at that, the coconut piece, if it were a, a very flimsy shell of a, of a moon, when it collided into the surface of Mars, it would break and these pieces would fall down. And then, if you go to the next image, 15, the face of Mars thing, it's a big image, so give it time to load. I've pointed a finger, or a little yellow arrow actually, at the face on Mars from this huge high resolution photo over the the, the uh, Cydonia uh, area there. That yellow arrow is pointing at the face on Mars as a chunk of the inside of a moon that collided there, and you can see it on the pictures of Mars all the time. There's a kind of black triangle that goes small at the right, bigger at the left. It's a fan, a black fan, where it collided and threw all the pieces of the surface of this moon, which I've calculated to be about 600 miles in diameter. And it left all these chunks in the Cydonia region, and if you look at the little blue lines, it's not all of the, of the, of the uh, chunks I'm talking about, but it's some that are very um, representative. You look at these blue lines, and you'll see they have the, the crystal or mountain part on the top, and then they have that sharp ridge, and then they have the part that's into the dust there where the outside of whatever that moon was has settled into the dust underneath it. Uh, you look at that in your own time and, and see what I'm talking about. That's, that, that's the mystery of why it looks that way. There are so many other pieces around it that have similar looks, but not without a face. They are they are the inside of a cooled moon that hit Mars, broke apart through you know dust and stuff everywhere, probably why we have so much red dust on the top and more gray and green stuff underneath in the various areas they've been exploring, uh, you know, with the uh, Mars uh, landers. The curiosity so, being the latest one, of course, finding some really incredible stuff there, and this is why. Anyway, all right. So, 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 what you're saying, the face on Mars, not man-made or alien-made, not no. uh, it's it's a natural occurrence based on uh, well, what you explained, and and that that coconut uh, next to the geode, I I get that now. I I'm looking at that, and yeah, I, I can see that. Okay. Wow. Okay, study it would be it would be a test next week on this. All right. <laughs> yeah. Hey, uh, a bit of fun, a bit of fun. Uh, image 10, uh, if you go onto that and click onto it, it'll take you to a video and an explanation of it, of how the astronauts on the space station are going to spend their Thanksgiving. Uh, you'll see that uh, they're going to all, you know, there's, I think, five or six of them. 
six or seven maybe, um, some Russians, some Americans, and uh, French, whatever. And they're going to celebrate Thanksgiving, the American astronaut up there who's giving the, the, the uh, dissertation on what they're going to eat, arranged all the food packets so that they could have Thanksgiving dinner, American style, on the space station. And he goes through, you know, this is turkey and this is uh, berry and, and uh, you know, all the stuff, uh, sweet potatoes. And uh, it's not going to probably be the same as you and I would have texture-wise. It's kind of a, a packet you squeeze. But anyway, right. they're going to have that. And on the ground, they're going to be piping up a number of football games so they can all sit around after a day's work on Thanksgiving in the evening and take time off to have Thanksgiving dinner t- together with all the other nations represented there on the space station. And he's doing this while he's floating in the space station. It's just a neat video, so have a look at it and have a thought about, uh, you know, uh, friends and family that you might meet with, uh, new friends perhaps, over Thanksgiving dinner, and take the opportunity to get to know them and be friends with them. Wow. Anyway. That's amazing. Uh, thank you for that, too. That That, that is kind of fun. Um, now, Australia TV, I know we're pressing the edge here. Australian TV has a news program kind of like Dateline. It's called Late Line. And um, they had a documentary, uh, which I put links to here in images 11 and 12, down in the type if you press on that. It'll take you to the video images and interviews with people that are like... Uh, they're wanting to go to Mars, you know, heads of corporations that are trying to get to Mars in the next eight years, next 10 years, next 30 years, and it's telling why they think at the news line there, late line, that this is a bit too optimistic. Um, however, Elon Musk, it seems to be walking on water as far as technology of late, and uh, he thinks he can have people there in eight years. So it's it'd be interesting uh, just to see, uh, see that documentary. Uh, and you'll have to click the type underneath. It's the same link on both 11 and 12, and it takes you to that documentary. So you can see uh, the pros and cons of all the companies. Yeah, Mars One is, is another one, and um, you know, uh, SpaceX is the other one. Uh, there will probably be more before it's through. Uh, Bigelow uh, Space is one of the put his hotels uh, in space and on uh, Mars. I think we can get there with the, uh, the addition of a new... Uh, electrogravitic and gravity type platform. I have, I have by email contacted SpaceX on anti-gravity and, and some other ways to. There might be a value to getting a colony on Mars a little bit quicker. Wow. Uh, yeah, it's uh, really interesting. So that's my wow. my Thanksgiving blurb. Um, and uh, that's pretty. Space, that's pretty neat. So you're well, okay. So the anti gravity stuff you're working on, you just shared with the Elon Musk. Crowd, I basically? I made I made the offer. Um, I don't know whether they will buy it or not, or whether they will accept it or not. But uh, wow, you know they don't know where I've been, what I've done. So I wouldn't blame them if they don't. But uh, I oh, thought goodness. Elon Musk to me. I mean, I, some of his uh, fellow South Africans uh, contacted me last year about developing. Uh, a device to put on the rockets to uh, make uh, faster, more efficient rockets to get to uh, the space station to to refuel and restock it. Um, and that's how I, I kind of got into the the knowledge of the political structure of uh, SpaceX and uh, Tesla Motors. It's uh, Elon Musk doesn't get to do everything he wants. There's a board of directors to answer to it. So it's kind of one of those things. If the board doesn't like it, well, it won't happen. Stan, thank you for for spending your time with us tonight. And uh, 
if we don't talk to you before, you and Holly have a, just a tremendously wonderful Thanksgiving, and of course, uh, uh, the little ones as well. Uh, yeah. Well, thank, thank you. you. We we uh, have got the turkey thawing at the moment, and she's getting all the stuff ready for my mom's salad and stuff. So, oh, that's great. You too, you know, guys. Uh, yes, yeah, sp- sp- spend some time. I mean, I, I just hope you have some downtime, some restful time, and. Uh, I'll tell you this: one of the, or two, two of the most uh, precious people we are thankful for are you and Holly. And I just want to say thank that. You. Thank Appreciate you. Appreciate that for being part of us. All right. God bless you. Thank you. God bless you. Next week, Lord willing. Yeah, absolutely. Folks, uh, Stan Dale from Standale dot com. Stan and Holly Dale, the amazing couple. Holly is just just a well. They're both. They're just both so precious and. Uh, you know, Stan is really an, an icon, a legend, isn't he? I mean, he's just—he's just the best. I wish him a happy Thanksgiving. Send him an email, Stan and Holly. Seriously, they read them. They appreciate that. And the same with all of our guests, and the same with all of our—you know—reach out and be. Th- we we should be so thankful for what we have. We are so fortunate, aren't we? Yeah, I think so. I just want to say thank you so much, ladies and gentlemen, to joining us uh, for joining us tonight, and uh, have an absolutely smashing program for you tomorrow and throughout the week. And let you know about Thanksgiving. Working on something here. Until tomorrow, stay safe. God bless and saddle for battle. Prepare, prepare, and pray. God bless. <laughs> <laughs>